Du kennst ihn auch. Hallo und willkommen zu einer Session of the Corona uh, Meeting Committee, Session Nummer 130, called They Know What They Were Doing. And uh, especially with all the vaccinations, there is lots of talk about forgiving. I would like to remind you of a statement the German health minister Spahn made when he said that we will have a lot to forgive later on. And especially this is a point we would like to take up in this session. Is it possible to forgive after everything that has happened so far? And then we would also like to talk to someone from Canada, a freedom activist. We're going to talk to a biologist from Australia. And we have someone with us from America who will, excuse me, I'm a bit confused at the moment. I'm a bit about too forgiving. So we're going to, we have two medical topics and two more political topics today. I would like to point out briefly that you can ask questions from the audience. We have um, the website www.coronaalschuss.com F130 uh, for the session number. The first guest is Gordon Pankala. He's a lawyer for labor, medical and criminal law from Cologne. Gordon, nice to have you with us. And we would like to look at the juridical aspects of all of this and forgiving. You have had some thoughts about this. Yes, indeed. Um, dear Viviane, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a while ago. Last time I um, joined you was in um, the 11th session. Yeah, a long time ago, wasn't it? It's, um, it's the 130th now. The topic of forgiveness um, came up now. A Canadian a politician um, up, uh, addressed the population apologizing for uh, the situation. And um, Spahn, a former health minister, uh, said it at the very beginning that we will have to forgive each other a lot um, at the end of the day. And now there was a video where he asked for forgiveness or he uh, said that people shouldn't be so hard-hearted. And that uh, kind of um, stirred up the community a bit, um, people wondering whether this is really possible. And um, I sent you a video, maybe you can uh, show it. For me, it's about the role of the forgiver to not harden the fronts, to try and understand why somebody may have made a mistake, to see the situation, deciding according to the best knowledge, but still being wrong. So I'm more about the person who should forgive rather than talking about the mistakes and be hardened and harsh. Yeah, that was the statement. And the question is, are we hardening? Uh, first of all, I think it's a good idea to talk about this. And I always was an advocate of avoiding um, a, a division. Um, but then to speak of forgiveness 
And um, as I have also, uh, also seen that um, um, forgiving and um, um, being sorry are two things, and he uh, claimed that everything was done according to um, um, people's best ability and knowledge. So I uh, tried to look into whether people uh, knew more than they admit, whether it really was all um, according to their best conscious efforts, um, or uh, whether there was a plan behind it. So I looked at it from a legal point of view, because I'm a legal expert, um, but also uh, some additional thoughts and uh, experiences that I've had over the last couple of years myself. And what I uh, realized first is that there was a shift of um, liability going towards the abstract. In the past, we had uh, police law, uh, acute danger, um, a clear and imminent danger. Uh, for instance, somebody is uh, in front of a bank with a gun. That is a, a clear and imminent danger. Everybody can see that. Now we're talking of an abstract danger. Um, some people may remember uh, there was a um, was attending a demonstration and the police were there as well and you were fighting an invisible uh, opponent an alien from outer space uh, looking down on us would have wondered are they crazy so it was an abstract threat um, in the air that nobody could perceive another topic that goes in hand in hand with it and that um, was also uh, dealt with by um, the Supreme Court under the, its president, Mr. Harbert, um, found that um, it's not only uh, a uh, legitimate goal of politicians uh, to um, uh, engage in health or in, um, health protection, but also um, in order to uh, prevent environmental damage that we need to do that. And Germany has been sued again because uh, the state hasn't adhered to certain climate goals or whatever. So these are all abstract uh, dangers that you can't see. Um, but they are uh, out there somewhere, and they're at the center of the legal discussion. And then also the moral debate. We have a, a severe moral debate uh, going on, and the morality is always about the healthy uh, people. It's no longer uh, the individual, but the people as a whole. Uh, so uh, we have to do it together. It's a uh, togetherness narrative. And if you don't participate in this, you are outside of the herd, and you're then um, a um, denier or an opponent. And that is where the media, but also by now, and I thought I was uh, really mistaken here. We had that with Corona as well. Uh, we had jointly against uh, Corona, and now we have jointly for en uh, environmental protection or jointly for energy change. Um, those are um, TV ads, uh, you know, starting with this um, grandmother at the beginning. Hello, so we get over the um, war winter uh, better together. And it's financed by our uh, Minister of uh, Economic Affairs, Mr. Habeck. So sometimes I feel like I'm in China, that uh, the government engages, uh, runs TV ads for their own policy. And then they say jointly uh, for freedom. What does it have to do uh, with freedom, with the um, Russian gas? That always, uh, that takes us back to the morality. We are not allowed to take the bad Russian gas for moral reasons. We're banned from using it. We must not um, accept that it. it is really moral, uh, moralized.
rise uh, to the tens. Uh, I'm a bit, uh, I'm a bit um, under the water here uh, today. I'm sorry, um, under the weather. Um, you invited me on the 11th or 11th. So uh, probably we stopped you from going to the bars and pubs already now at this time of the day. Well, um, <coughs> it only starts at uh, 3 p.m. if you're out in uh, Cologne, um, so um, you can uh, join all the um, um, Corona deniers um, party at um, uh, Corollas. Yeah, he's traveling, unfortunately. All right, so I'm not as afraid as in the 11th um, session where I um, lit a cigarette provocatively in order to point out something because I wanted to point out labor uh, protection because smoking was banned for labor protection reasons. And I um, uh, thought that they might do the, uh, similar things with the virus. We weren't at that point yet, but I'll get back to that later on. So this moralizing um, approach with the mask, everything um, in the courtrooms as well, uh, mask mandate in court uh, courts and the lawyers had the, the judges had to uh, take decisions uh, to show that they weren't the bad uh, uh, Corona opponent, um, but that they were in line with um, the uh, official narrative. And then uh, the latest thing is the uh, climate glue uh, demonstrators. And uh, they stand up for health, no, not health, for um, the environment. So the environment needs to be protected primarily. And this means that I can uh, commit um, criminal acts, i.e. Uh, throw um, potato um, uh, mashed potato at people or glue myself to the street, um, um, but nobody must um, pursue me for it. So that takes us back to natural law, which means that the law of the state no longer applies because I am uh, working uh, for a, a higher good. And I read it really by a, a commentary on um, the um, constitutional law um, uh, published in the plurum. That's a, um, a legal uh, forum. And you can't do that. I, uh, If I say um, I want uh, Social Security levels to be raised because we are um, by law required, or uh, the, the Constitution says that um, it is uh, undignified uh, to have an exceedingly low uh, social security level. I um, and in protest, I would start uh, running every red light uh, starting tomorrow. And if everybody does that, then society collapses. Olaf Scholz, uh, chancellor, who was approached with it, um, who said maybe we should choose a different uh, type of protest. That's not enough. This has to be uh, condemned because if we all refuse to accept the law, then we have chaos. And to claim that it was non-violent protest, um, that's not true. Um, the journalist should get a little bit of uh, legal uh, expertise because we had a Lepel um, case where a student was um, protesting against the uh, uh, train fares 
uh, and he was sitting in front of a train on the track, uh, stopping the train, obviously, and um, the court ruled that this was a type of uh, psychological violence because the train driver can't just run over him. So this is also a form of uh, violence that people glue themselves to the streets, and journalists should realize that as well, and you shouldn't downplay it. Now, next point. Um, the law um, in itself, we're still talking about forgiveness, but we need to look back. Who can understand the law anymore? Journalists, as I just said, oftentimes uh, give very uh, incorrect or uh, incomplete information, creating uh, the impression in people that uh, things are right the way they are. And uh, during uh, the corona period, we had uh, constantly shifting um, uh, rules and regulations by uh, state and municipal governments. And one um, member of the Constitutional Court spoke of an erosion of the state of uh, the rule of law because people don't understand, don't know anymore what is right and wrong. And um, uh, for instance, um, it was. Um, at one stage uh, made illegal to have alcohol in the po in the public, but it was overthrown, uh, thrown out by a court. And um, I was having some alcohol in a park in public at the time, and I knew that it was legal. Uh, nevertheless, I was kicked uh, out of the park. And that takes me, us to the level of the EU, where the law is no longer palpable. I think most people have no idea how the EU works. So we live in a legal system where people don't even know anymore how this system actually works. And the EU is made of seven uh, institutions altogether. Um, but above all, we have the Council. Um, uh, those are uh, the um, uh, heads of state and government. And then we have Ursula, the president um, of the Commission. Um, so the uh, draft uh, legislation comes from the Commission. So Ursula makes them. The Parliament has no right of initiative, uh, for legal initiative. And the parliament can just uh, say yes or no to these uh, laws. So everything that comes from the EU uh, is transparent for people. They don't understand it one way or the other. And I have more examples uh, coming down the line. For instance, uh, an excellent um, example from the corona period, there was one regulation from 2009, 120-09 on uh, vaccines. And in December of uh, 2009, it was uh, regulated that genetic thera uh, therapies, if uh, vaccines against um, infectious diseases are not genetic therapies. So let me repeat that. Uh, vaccines against uh, infectious diseases are not um, genetic therapies. Mr. Vodak had mentioned it at the time already. That means that a banana that's um, part of a fruit salad is no longer a banana. And uh, this rule, nobody realized what was happening there. I didn't realize that until uh, 2020, 11 years, this was inoperative, basically, this uh, law. And these uh, genetic therapies have very high licensing uh, requirements. Uh, and up until Corona, as far as I know, we had five licensed genetic therapies, and uh, there's the case of Jesse Gelsinger, who died of such a, a gene therapy, 
But all of those were things where uh, you figured, okay, these diseases are so bad uh, and lethal that if it doesn't work, um, we don't lose anything because otherwise people will die off anyway. But now with this exemption that if the um, genetic therapy is injected into the body with the vaccine, uh, with this exemption that nobody realized, we managed to get these genetic therapies in, in the context of Corona. And that is, I believe, a deal that the pharmaceutical industry struck with the commission because we know that the production of these uh, genetic uh, therapies is very cheap. Uh, of, of these, this medication is very cheap, but the development is very expensive. And if I do that with very rare genetic diseases, uh, just as with uh, Jessica Elzinger, I won't earn any money. But here with this, I uh, earn a lot of money with it. And that is one reason for me uh, to see uh, uh, why this was done. It's, I believe, it's just about the money. <clears throat> it's all about the money. So that's one of the examples um, of things coming down from the EU that nobody uh, knows about. Second aspect, the um, internal combustion engine has just been banned by Ursula. And again, we should hold a vote on how many people in Germany agree with this, that uh, the internal combustion engine is banned here. I'd say that 90%, let's deduct uh, the, green, um, the Greens, 85% would say no, we're against this. Then, uh, funny enough, some weeks later, they uh, backpedaled and um, they said, keep producing before we have the uh, fully electric vehicle here. Those are things that are uh, imposed on us um, um, by the EU without people having any say in it. And most of those are laws that need to be implemented in um, the German parliament. They come down from the EU. So I have to say that our own parliament is only a kind of executive body that only implements what's coming, which is coming down from the top. And whether that is in the um, intention of the new preamble to the, the German uh, constitution, Merkel may have said that in the real world, we have to part with some uh, of our uh, sovereignty. She said that, but it has to be balanced out. And I wonder whether this is really balanced out. Um, Another uh, example is um, Article 130 of the Criminal Code, which was changed as well, uh, based on um, EU legislation as well, this uh, war denial uh, thing that was subsumed there under um, uh, Article 130. That was demanded by the EU as well. And something else that came, Corona bonds, um, the exception of no bailout uh, rules. I'll get back to that later on. Parting with uh, power. Um, um, the constitutional uh, law, I uh, spoke about that now, institutions, um, the Climate uh, Council, for instance, within the EU, those are all um, aspects of law. It was assumed that they have something to say and they know about this. And normal citizens who watch uh, public TV stations say, all oh, right, those are things that we need to implement because the EU said it. Uh, but who says it? I never voted for them. Now, who's the Climate uh, Council? Now, just because, uh, just briefly uh, before the um, um, World Soccer Champ Championship, we could uh, create the World um, Football Association and make claims. And that's always uh, something that is portrayed like that to people. Um, somebody said, and we need to implement it now, and we don't have to take it um, 
the uh, U.S. left the WHO under Trump, I believe. It's not binding on us, but it's always communicated like as if it was. And the next thing is uh, the uh, preemption of um, a liability. Um, so um, that means um, I'm not committing a crime now, but um, hate speech. And that leads that somebody sometime will do something. And as lawyers, we know we have incitation. So that means you uh, ins uh, you influence uh, the uh, perpetrator by um, instigating him. Uh, but if I only say my uh, opinion, that's no um, crime. But nevertheless, it is being subsumed under uh, uh, criminal uh, criminal law, so that nobody speaks their uh, opinion anymore. Now, in North Australia, for instance, we have a, a new institution for uh, reporting of racism. So. Um, you can report things that aren't criminal statements, but they are um, reported, they are recorded um, just in case people from East Germany will remember this. So the words will be followed by deeds. So we have to suppress the words so nobody uh, can later on have weird ideas. That is nothing but a restriction of freedom of opinion, I believe. And Twitter is being uh, criticized uh, very severely. Let me take a sip of tea here now. So that takes me to the next point. Um, retrospect, who was involved? We're still discussing, can we forgive? Do we want to accept uh, Jens Spahn's offer? Um, but who was involved here? First of all, the courts of law. The courts of law, uh, in their um, uh, summary um, decisions. Um, we uh, uh, find lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, but RK always prevailed. Then we had the main proceedings that uh, simply aren't uh, heard until this day. Um, and um, uh, concerning the um, uh, insurance cases, for instance, um, in Cologne, they're not dealing with this. Or um, uh, there was a child who wasn't uh, capable of wearing a mask um, for uh, medical reasons, and then there was a big brouhaha about what does the certificate have to state um, um, to uh, grant this exemption to a child. It's just being sat on um, by the Court of Justice, and I complained, um, and um, the answer was that the uh, court was able to do what they uh, can do. Um, they can rule when they want. Um, so um, I just want to know, in Cologne, which PCR tests were being used? Uh, where were they used? What was the situation in the hospitals? Um, did people um, uh, go there with or without uh, COVID? I had a huge list of questions, and of course, um, the courts aren't happy to deal with that. So that's the second trick. Um, the courts just sit on things. Third trick, the courts declare themselves incompetent. We had the video by um, um, uh, Klaus Schwab. Um, uh, the Basis Party uh, commissioned me to uh, sue for suppression of this. And then it uh, um, the courts uh, ruled we're not competent. Please uh, turn to Dublin. 
The same happened in the uh, Court of Appeals. They said, uh, go to Dublin. And uh, the uh, state court, after they'd sat on the case for a month, and a, a month later hadn't done anything yet in a, uh, a summary proceeding, um, and uh, they said, we'll have to verify whether we're competent and all. And we had to have the uh, documents that we submitted to uh, translate it uh, into English uh, for 5,000 euro, uh, which is a lot of money for the uh, Basis uh, party. Uh, you're a member of them as well. Uh, so um, that was, of course, out of the question. And um, I said, we're not going to do that. And the law uh, doesn't require that. Um, uh, the opponent can reject this but we can uh, have it translated then, uh, but I can do that in-house. We don't have to uh, spend 5,000 euro on that. And the um, case was then dismissed. There was no need to expedite it anymore. Even though they sat on it for two months, that was the crucial point, and so that was the end of that. So the YouTube uh, cases have become, become difficult as well in Dusseldorf and Berlin as well. In uh, Cologne, I still managed to prevail. So courts declare themselves incompetent. The fourth point, as far as the judges are concerned, I'm trying to skip things quickly here. The courts do not follow the proceedings. We had the mass proceedings in Corona times, but now outside of it as well, where I said, can you take the mask off, please? No, I don't want to. I said, I want to. I want to see the witness. No, because of Corona. There's a recommendation. Can I ask something? I said, do you also wear the mask in the supermarket um, to the witness and the judges? We are not answering that, was the answer. So now we have to say neutrality of the court is something that is very dear. And for a so-called fear uh, uh, that someone has who doesn't wear a mask in the supermarket has to wear a mask in court in a corona case, obviously this is about hiding behind the mask. And the complaint against this was, of course, rejected naturally. In Dusseldorf, witnesses in the proceedings, there's something if I am accused of something, I can um, say, I don't want to say anything. So I want to take this person as a witness. And the judge said they wouldn't say so. He is accused. He can um, not say anything. So uh, that's just done um, without anything. So there's a witness not being heard. Uh, all the um, proceedings for smaller issues, you are completely stripped of your rights. Uh, because it's always if um, the judge uh, has a big benefit from it, um, other way, and this is never the case, otherwise you are completely free, uh, they can do what they want. And that is an experience I've had many, many times. Um, that was one thing about the courts. Um, the other point is employers, especially the church employers, characters, and so on. Very bad experience. They were very conform. Um, it was the lawyer's chamber here in a proceeding in a court case. Uh, on the second Corona uh, Act, you may remember this didn't, this wasn't implemented. That was the Spahn um, Act deciding the vaccination status. It was a bit early. It went into the drawer and didn't 
get to apply. For me, it is an indirect mandatory vaccination if you decide and uh, rule out whether somebody is vaccinated or not. And I got a letter from the uh, lawyer's chamber with a complaint saying this guy is right and he just uh, interpreted the law which he could do, but that there is a proceedings against this kind of saying, and other people know that from their profession, if they are critical, there were similar cases. Emails, for example, which I wrote, because it's not my email address that this was uh, caught up. Well, anyway, all of that has been turned down, of course, but all of this psychological pressure put on people, and many people know that from their employers as well. So you went to a rally, and uh, we've seen you, we don't want this. Economy, I was uh, struck, though, that they participated, the big companies in Ukraine, I see Ukraine buttons, donate for Ukraine. Somehow, they all seem to be into the game, as if they were all connected and of course we got the media who also participated and i wanted to say that it starts by selecting the type of news uh, if we talk about live press the selection of the news is the first important point if you look at all the rallies and street demonstrations i think uh, we hold the world record here in germany if 2% of that would have been reported, and not just uh, the bad things about who apparently was on the rally as well, the bad guys. So any upper class, middle class girlies who um, are the so-called grassroots uh, movement people with big stages, even Balwick would have been uh, jealous of that. So, if they say, of course, that's big in the press, like Fridays for Future, so that's where we see how the news are selected already. And there are statements that we are in talking about forgiving. Please forgive me. What's that? Was Mr. Spahn says, uh, Klaus Blomer, we can remember that case show with them, point their fingers at them. This is something that is impossible to do. So you should think about uh, Bertelsmann uh, Media Group, and they have made massive profits. Uh, so they should about the license to broadcast, whether it is a PR institution, they built a massive center for tele-shopping, uh, well, it's a private company, and uh, so they don't need to be objective like the public stations would be. But it is quite astonishing to take these states' uh, statements, especially the boss of RTL is so intriguing. This is... Uh, that's uh, very, very bad. Maybe you have a contact with him, talk to him. Let's look at politics. Uh, Merkel said pandemics is a strain on democracy. Well, I have to say in that stress test, you all failed. Uh, you broke the law in the past many times. We had the Euro crisis where Merkel got us flu the refugee crisis that Merkel did, it's all there. The nuclear deal, 
So we have massive liability damages here. And of course, nobody notes that. So legal frameworks and breaching the legal framework is a standard by now. And that's a risk. If uh, people see that those up there um, don't follow the law, they don't have to as well. And this is quite a risk for the whole of society. Um, we see that in Corona crisis now, we had that in the, in the refugee crisis, the Euro crisis, the nuclear deal where it was just um, neglectively worked with by the courts. So um, maybe the population got used to the politics breaching the law. Um, so maybe we don't think of anything else anymore. And then we can come to one more thing that we talked about, which was the statement in the EU Parliament, which you broadcast as well on the vaccines by Mr. Small, the manager of Pfizer, who said, well, uh, for time reasons, we didn't test whether the vaccines prevent passing on of the virus. What? You didn't test it? So what about the pandemic of the non-vaccinated, which was proclaimed by politics? What about the 2G, 3G, all the rules? Um, so uh, you can treat people differently if there is a reason. The reason would be protection. Now you say you didn't even test that and check it. Interesting also that um, the Tagesschau, the main new 8 o'clock news, say it's fake news, reasoning in it by saying that uh, it's uh, advertising, but it's all known. It was all known for a long time. The CDC had mentioned this as well. This is the reason why this is the fake news now, that this is uh, known before. So that's pure madness. So clearly they say, no, it would have protected against uh, um, transmission and infection. We all know that. That's always the case in case of a positive test. In a positive test case, you are uh, infected or whatever. Uh, but only if you are positive test tested, you don't have to stay at home anymore. So now if they are fit, they can come to work. So it is all mad. It is all irregular on behalf of the politics that it's it's just too bad. And why do politicians do this way? I have an example from Tübingen, Boris Palmer, I think, uh, he's called Robert Palmer, like the singer. He said, as a politician, I'm a doer. I have to do things. That's what the people expect. And this is why we beat this through and hack it out. Everybody who doesn't want to get vaccinated gets a uh, 5,000 euro fine. So that means he accepts the things that he publishes are illegal. He has legal a legal team who could he could ask. He said, I'll just do it. And that's a very different, um, dangerous attitude, Mr. Palmer, of you saying, I don't care whether it is legal or not. I'll just do it because people expect me to. No, I don't do so. I expect politicians to follow the law. And if they are not sure about the law, they be careful. But this is what they didn't happen. They uh, um, 
they raced on the hardest measures. So um, I should ask Jens, uh, please talk to Boris Palmer about his statements. Merkel at the time also said um, these uh, precautions, we have to be careful that we don't get an indirect vaccination uh, or vaccine mandate. We got a video on that. We've got two more videos, what Faser said, the Minister of Interior Affairs, and what Merkel said. Maybe we should recall that. It's constitutionally a difficult question. Uh, that's why I wouldn't say that you need a vaccination mandate because you'll fail in the constitutional court. But increasing the pressure on uh, the unvaccinated, I think, is the right thing to do. That's why we have to be very careful with indirect vaccination uh, mandates, but um, these measures apply for the next weeks to start with. Well, we have to ask people whether they have reasons not to get vaccinated, and we want to have the highest level of uh, safety now, so I can't preclude uh, a different um, kind of approach a few months from now. But uh, for the moment, we said we don't want to have a vaccination mandate. We only advocate um, vaccinations. And um, so we have to be careful with any measures that imply an indirect um, vaccination mandate. But for the next few weeks, we will just advocate it, just like the uh, Federal Minister of Health said. And then we keep um, discussing. So we have to be uh, to try, as I have to repeat, we have a, a plethora of variants or mutants. We always have to keep in mind with a huge number of cases, uh, the risk of the um, virus becoming even more virulent must not be underestimated. And right now, the vaccines are still uh, efficacious that we have to remember. Um, with Delta, um, it's uh, slightly reduced already, so we have to be careful not to produce too many cases, but that applies to all countries because the variants aren't coming from Germany so far, haven't been coming from Germany, but from other countries. Wow, very, very specific. This Delta was less dangerous than the others. I don't understand what she's saying. Well, it could have been worse mutations. I think Mama Merkel was a bit more cautious. Looking back, we have to see that. That it wasn't as bad when she ruled than when the coalition ruled after her, where Pfizer said it may be uh, against the constitution, so we have to look for that. And that was Mr. Lushik said, and this is why they never came up with a general mandate. And then they had this uh, unreasonable um, ruling in the parliament trying to put that vaccination mandate through. But it was all a big show. In the end, we can say it was just that. We had 20% who didn't uh, participate. If they all went to Holland or the rest of uh, elsewhere in Europe, that would have been disaster. It would have been possible. So that's why I said this uh, voting where they couldn't find an agreement in Parliament on the age or something. That was a huge show. They just try to back out uh, uh, out of it. They all wanted to say we wanted it, but it somehow it didn't work. For me, it was just great. Uh, a 
great uh, pissing off people. And even Fezer said it is illegal. And even Lushet, uh, um minister, said it is uh, illegal. And it's all pressure. It's all pressure on all these things, nothing else. The same thing that uh, Jens would uh, try to find out with Ms. Fazer and Merkel, how they came out to build up this pressure on the people in the sense of forgiving. That's what we have to ask, I think. So what else do we have? Let me move on to the next point. Can I uh, make a comment here? Stefan Korn, in his uh, alarm paper, had dealt with the um, dangerousness of the measures. As you mentioned, Boris Palmer here now, it's not enough now to say, all right, I'll just get started and then I can uh, uh, present in public. Um, but any decision for any major measure has a high risk uh, potential. We um, have seen what happened to people. We are um, learning now uh, what uh, has happened to people uh, wearing masks, um, um, all the, the, the little hairs that are in uh, those masks that have a cancerogenic effect and uh, the uh, psychological problems um, that people suffered who were alone in hospital or couldn't see uh, their loved ones or were alone, uh, isolated, etc., etc. It's no end of um, aspects. And all these things that would have to be taken into consideration in uh, weighing uh, these aspects. Um, I uh, contacted a uh, population uh, protection specialist at the time, uh, what he would think, uh, whether they uh, take precautions uh, against any vaccination damage. If they vaccinate 80 million people, you have to have um, hospital capacities, um, field hospitals, beds, whatever, um, for whatever could happen. He said, uh, well, he was hoping, he said, that things would go well, just so, without taking any uh, precautionary measures. You can't do that if you have such a big brouhaha about uh, COVID, which quickly proved to be less dangerous than maybe initially for a short moment uh, uh, could have believed, or maybe not. But, well, go on. Yes, well, Spahn said, we all did to the best of all our knowledge. And I think in the beginning it might have been a bit difficult to find out what's really going on. But quite quickly it turned out that uh, uh, it's not the big show as it proposed to be. And that takes me to the next point, which is the... Uh, the the conspiracy theories and uh, so it's kind of a secret plan that all of them full follow and as always said everybody participated the Russians did their own vaccine um, more or less uh, voluntary the Chinese I don't know but maybe there were a little bit of local reasons why many people participated. And as far as Europe is concerned, I have one theory, which is that in March 2020, the Italian banks were clinically dead. The uh, state's uh, um, funds didn't work anymore. They needed money and the common liability had been excluded. So they said they wouldn't do these euro bonds. And then the corona bonds were introduced exactly for those people where COVID was worse, worst, 
um, in Italy where money was used up most. And that was an EU ruling Maastricht contract. There was a EU ruling on that 222 AEU contract saying that this if a member state is affected of a terror attack, a natural disaster, or a human-caused um, disaster, the other states will support its political organs. So, a human-caused uh, disaster is a financial crisis. Um, that's what we saw in the financial crisis with Greece. So, what uh, we had here wasn't a terror attack or a natural calamity. And this brings the virus into play. This um, paragraph is the exception of the treaty, 2022.2, means we are not liable for the other states. And now, with the natural disaster of the virus, that was leveled out. So, if we talk about this, if the euro uh, fails, the EU will fail. And that was a vital reason for the European governments to participate in the virus game, because with that reason, we can uh, introduce that uh, common liability. And the Italians showed it in Bergamo. They crashed their economy, saying, we close everything. And uh, now we see the development in Italy, the gratefulness. I had a friend who was an alcoholic. He was uh, um, paying 10, 50, 20, 50 euros more and more and gave back a bit. But we'll never get any gratefulness. And in the end, he says, bye-bye, I'm off. And that's what we have now. Now Maloney comes and says, great, see you, bye-bye, forget about the debt. So. That's what they did as the exception of uh, Treaty Paragraph 125 EU. Um, and then there was the Corona bonds and the rebuilding credits, which are for the Green Deal now. And next generation, um, next generation EU, where there's a massive bubble of money pushed out for some crazy projects and now, um, they are doing what they always wanted to do is the Green Deal that we have zero COVID and zero emission. It's all zero, zero, zero. We are on the 11th of November now, so you can have zero now as well. So that's the next idiocy coming in. So after COVID has kind of vanished, you see the, the uh, lot of figures anymore. Don't see them in the TV. Now the next round is the bad Russians. We can't take the gas. We have to uh, shut down our industry to save the world in the sense of Green Deal. So we have to do that now in order to survive. And the next ideology comes in. And for me, Corona, in that perspective, was the door opener for this world of ideology that we are in now. The next world is the re, uh, restart or redesign of the economy. Not everybody wants that, but those who don't are not listened to. But the other states um, could have participated in other reasons. Uh, in US, they might have wanted to get rid of Trump. And uh, so that was a good game. So they said, Trump, you want to, you have to close everything. And he said, I don't want to. 
Um, Musk had to close his uh, factory in Sunshine State as well, and he was cross as well. And uh, that's why nobody likes him anymore now, because he said, I'm not closing my Tesla um, factory. Well, he got Twitter for that anyway. So there is various opportunities and reasons why countries participated and why not. In Europe, I predominantly see the uh, Euro issue. And now my request to Spahn, in a sense of forgiving, is politics has to be transparent, no backdoor and no uh, SMS on cell phones from Ursula. And uh, it has to be comprehensible, it has to allow more core participation and not be dictated from above. The influence of the media has to be strongly reduced. We have to come back to a balanced reporting and stop with that moral shit. Don't uh, uh, limit people out. And if I got the Spahn right, maybe he wants to join your show now that he helps us now to do that, of course, we will be happy to forgive him. And as a lawyer, let me say it's all in the law, Article 20, basic law, the saying the federal government, federal um, state of Germany is a social um, state with the rule of law. All power is uh, with the people and the third uh, paragraph is the constitutional um, law and the execution is bound to the law. If we would reintroduce that, that would get us quite far. Dear Jens and Jens Spahn is now going to help us to introduce all that. And if he does so and helps to um, rebuild this, we are going to go forgive him. But what's not going to happen is that all this bullshit is simply pushed under the rug and we carry on as we did before. That is what none of us wants. I think nobody wants to forgive anybody for that. So we will forgive, but we will not forget. That is something that we have to work up. Um, corona was too much. We did not, we will not swallow it. Many people have become critical. Many people were critical before, and that's going to develop. And we are not going to have it and just say, Jens, okay, you might be a nice guy. You were not so tough. You were a bit thinking. You said there's no lockdown. You didn't. That's not the way to work it. So sincerity means you help us to sweep up the uh, shatters. And if you don't, we won't forgive you. That's my answer in the end. Well, you're quite generous, Gordon. We, I think we uh, would have to think about, uh, we had a lot of victims, uh, we have to say, a lot of people who suffered a lot and many people who still will suffer um, if they opted for a vaccination, for instance, or um, people who suffer from having lost their families, having lost their jobs, their um, companies, etc. Many things that um, went wrong here. So I don't know if we can um, forgive so soon. I don't think we only have to um, work this up, uh, work this off. We, we have to have um, a um, active repentance, really active remorse. Um, and I think a lot of people need to be compensated. So it's not enough to have a few uh, nice words. A lot of um, 
uh, wrongdoing must be righted. And um, um, when we first started, we thought when we do this for four or six weeks, then uh, people can see all the problems and the government will think twice, which of course obviously didn't happen. But uh, there were so many people who sent information to MPs as well. I myself um, wrote uh, to all MPs with the level of knowledge we had at the time in, I think it was in May or June 2020, and that's when a lot of things were becoming transparent already. So I sent a mail to uh, every, uh, each and every single MP, and very few only answered at all. And I uh, uh, found uh, very badly, um, uh, found it very bad that uh, someone from the SPD wrote back that, um, oh, it's very bad that there is an increase in uh, domestic violence. We have to um, uh, see what happens. But it's obvious that if you uh, condemn people to um, uh, cabin fever, then uh, the people will freak out and there will be an increase of domestic violence. And, and uh, of course, we have to deal with this. And uh, there was no dealing with this uh, to this day. Then the Great Barrington Declaration uh, came along. There were so many petitions that went many um, informative mails that people sent. Um, there was this Mr. Feeble worker with a parliament or with an, uh, a ministry or whatever who also published a um, an informative brochure there was so much we can't say that people didn't know anything no yeah they can't say that uh, that's uh, bullshit anyway uh, did i mention the telephone conference with the chancellor with the state presidents uh, the return to normal will only be there if the everybody's vaccinated that wasn't right in the beginning so maybe just imagine it would have taken seven years wouldn't we would have had seven years of lockdowns how could they say that in that situation that shows that there was a plan to it how can you say something like that in a situation where you don't know how it develops whether we get the vaccination put this out and that's what happened and the people started to build these apps, uh, QR codes and so on. And um, people from Cologne will remember, I got the Professor Hörte uh, letter, a, uh, a, a politician, I told him to calculate what it means in real figures, 0.00017%. He didn't interest, he didn't take any interest, but he did answer say we have a dynamic situation dynamic situation is always the the uh, buzzword there so okay um i am quite mild maybe today um but we are in the beginning of carnival i'm already uh, always ready to forgive i want to speak people if they are sincere about it but the damage which i didn't have but many people did whether these people really can forgive individual is an individual decision. It was too bad for you that they don't want to. And I can understand that. And just to finish off with a little, little story, I have a friend who had got into trouble with her husband, who was at home, and not used to sticking together all the time. And the parents, the 88-year-old father had to uh, take care of the dement mother. And now the son uh, had a nose operation. And uh, now it turns out he wants to become a woman. 
And this is something that these old people have to deal with, this gender, LGBTQ, whatever, is modern. At that age of 23, you don't know what you want to, that people get to these crazy ideas and say, well, please get some sperm frozen, maybe you'll re-decide re -decide later. So, that family's bust. Uh, everybody has to make up their own mind. I think we should start talking, but we've been trying to do that for three years. Now, somebody has to accept our offer to talk. We are offering to talk. The others don't. Maybe Jens Spahn listened to us today and accepts our offer. That's the only way to proceed. So, in that sense, I would say don't um, tell him to piss off right away, but um, talk about things. Talk about things and, and see. I would be surprised, but maybe there is a surprise on the line. Well, I'd say it's always good to talk. Um, um openly, candidly, and we will certainly renew our offer to talk uh, with them because we've been inviting representatives of the opposing side, uh, shall we say, or uh, those people who um, were on the, on the government side, basically, and uh, it was all rejected. Nobody wanted to come, but maybe things have changed. Uh, so I'm curious to see, um, would like to um, talk to these people directly and we'll see what comes of it. Well, sometimes things take their time. I think it's a bit early. People are still in office and we see once they leave office, they are all open when they retire. If we look at 9-11, now you can look Amazon, the architects saying it's all stupid and bullshit what they told us. But that takes 20 years until these people are out of their offices. As long as they are in office, they know if it was looked at now, they can take their hats and that's what they don't want to and so i think corona is a topic that will take us along a couple of years down the line but it's a question of how much pressure we uh, exert because i do believe that the situation is fundamentally different from 9 11 because it's a, a very complex uh, issue technically very complex which affected all countries or many countries in many aspects, it, it affected us all, but nevertheless, uh, the uh, consequences of the uh, the war uh, didn't affect everybody. Um, so, of course, some nerds could have uh, really um, dug into it, looked into it in detail, but now uh, it's the whole world that was massively affected and we saw that uh, there were groups all um, uh, in all countries that looked at this, um, accompanied this uh, in much detail. So all the archives that were uh, created. So it has been uh, very well processed even while it was happening. And that's a different situation than you would normally have it with an historical event. Um, it's a few historians normally that look at things, but now it's actually um, such that uh, we're, we've all become citizen journalists, as it were. Everybody who asked a critical question uh, needed to um, find out about information themselves and um, activate themselves. And we have a lot of evidence um, and proof that we collated. I think that's pretty good. I, I, I have a question to you as well here from the audience. So you're damned to carry on, actually. You have to carry on. 
I, I did that joke uh, in April. Um, you'll be done in hundreds, hundred uh, sessions. I hope you're not crossed with me. It was the first April joke day. I made that joke anyway. And it's important to carry on. We see this now because the fronts are crumbling. So we see maybe we'll get to talk now. Maybe not straight with Jens, but with others perhaps. And things are starting to move. And that's an opportunity we have to take. You have a question? Yes, I do. Um, the question is whether you see uh, a chance of uh, any of the fines being uh, paid back in the context of the um, um, working off these issues. Yes, I think this is a case in other countries, maybe. Um, not really. I can only say that the hearings are m much better. I had a sensational hearing yesterday. I was like in a different world. It, it was enjoyable. Uh, Natoni General, a corona case, so who critically asked uh, the officer, what you're saying sounds strange. I can't imagine this and um, the judge very nice without a mask so things are moving and more and more, more of the proceedings are um, turned down now but um, we are one of the few countries only uh, using these uh, great masks uh, still it's not going to be as quick in germany so sorry a uh, bad answer perhaps but uh, not what you want to hear but i don't believe so but things are going to be more relaxed uh, i think it's going to be kind of dropped out the back window many of the proceedings are simply not proceeded also the activists in berlin nothing happens i think they're not, never going to take place so you just uh, let it run out and dwindle away so it's so outdated and we stop that i think that's probably what's going to happen i could imagine in, in poland and in india we i believe we had the consolation uh, where fines were simply dropped cases were dropped uh, for instance uh, restaurant um, owners um, got their uh, fines back or wasn't pursued a second question is um there was a case where um, a physician had to go to um, uh, to jail for two years because of the mask um, uh, certificates. Um, what happening? Do you uh, know a case with a female physician? Well, that was something um, I heard about. That very curious, very strange. I asked the judge, "What do you think?" if they are rightly or wrongly certified are we going to do a a practical um, thing in the courtroom now a practical examination to see whether it's right or wrong and they said well we don't so but do we want to drop it perhaps but my client um, was afraid of being uh, judged and so he just uh, kicked it out he said i'll pay twenty thousand uh so that was dropping it as a punishment so what do you think and then it's like uh it's bargaining it's like a bazaar so you you say the first offer somebody opened the book and said it wasn't 300 cases it was 800 900 cases so i just kicked me off the chair 
he, uh, but he's a Buddhist. He said, I'll just say it as is. That's karma, whatever is all together. Uh, the fees, I'll said, I, I pay 20,000 euros and we're off. And then the attorney at law and the judge really said, well, in this case, it would be okay. And uh, it went to the Cologne Zoo. And um, I hope um, the elephant home will be called after that doctor now. That um, went to the newspapers. So Guru Doctor buys uh, bails themselves out of the judge. Um, he's a Buddhist. He didn't. He didn't care. Done. Done. I'm happy. I help the people helping the zoo now, and everything else. He didn't care about. A <laughs> great guy, actually. But uh, that a doctor was uh, sentenced. I don't know, but I don't know that personally. I know that case that I just talked about. Right, I think we'll have to uh, monitor this. Well, he was afraid as well because he'd heard, he'd heard of that, that people got prisoned. That's why he called that big sum. I was up to 4,000 and he said 20. Well, anyway, it worked. So um, people are scared, were scared to be jailed. There was another case here, Dr. Bovoni. I don't know what uh, happened to him. Um, some people reported about him. I don't know what was the outcome of that. Well, I have another question. What's your uh, evaluation? How high is the risk that uh, provocateurs are undermining the resistance? Well, I think it's absolutely possible. I don't want to give any names. I got a couple of ideas of people who I would assume they are candidates. But I can't prove this, we'll never find out, but we know that in the RIF times um, that the leader who threw the Molotov cocktails at the time explained to people how to do it, he was um, of the Secret Service. So I wouldn't uh, exclude this uh, being people here who are not going to work for us. You can see how they act or don't. Maybe we'll never find out, but I do think that it is well thinkable that some people are not quite sincere, let me call it that. Right, okay, I have another question here which um, has a similar thrust. It's very difficult to um, foresee. I had a lengthy discussion with someone else uh, recently who has taken a look at many um, Secret Service cases of the last years, uh, centuries nearly, and he had things to tell. It was really um, unbelievable where the um, um, uh, Secret Services uh, involved, uh, the uh, RAF uh, things, where um, the Secret Service did, uh, provided the weapons and um, there were uh, supporters back then who um, felt that it was good that um, there was a position to capitalism, um, maybe uh, not condoning the um, violence, but um, it's a terrible story. But there were a lot of sympathizers actually back then. And when you consider that all of this was uh, possibly a complete fake uh, in order to erode um, a protest movement against capitalism and there were an 
endless number of other cases of a similar vein. I think we would have to look into that in much more detail to see how this was real, how they had entire uh, groups of people, the grassroots phenomenon that really didn't um, apply. It's unbelievable. Whatever you look, it's all um, artificial, not with everything, but much more than you would have thought. Well, I don't think you should uh, suspect uh, everybody to be from the other side. Uh, that uh, jeopardizes trust in people, so you should um, be careful about that. That's not good either. No, that's not what I was getting at. Um, I, I was just really flabbergasted uh, to hear how many things happened in the past that you would have uh, seen differently that uh, turn out to be um, externally controlled, um, but it is not um, impossible uh, to find out about these things because there were um, occasions in the past where documents became uh, got leaked or where uh, connections were um, exposed, etc., so where we uh, could find this. But of course, we should not start distrusting everybody that everything is undermined. Um, I think that would be wrong. Uh, we really have to take a closer look at what do people really do. Well, people do a mistake. You may forgive them. Everybody does mistakes. I did as well. And uh, you do growl uh, at times. We are uh, a grassroots movement with lots of different people where we just find out who's better off with this and person and the other. And uh, happened to me as well, but um, I can uh, beg my pardon for things. And uh, so I think you will have to do that for others. That doesn't make the other people bad people or from the other side straight away. But there is this phenomenon nevertheless. Okay, uh, so we're back at the uh, uh, issue of forgiveness. Um, very interesting now. I think we've come full circle now. It's, I, I think there's uh, important aspects to be considered and to invite the opposing side. If they were serious, they would open the discussion. All right, thank you very much to you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, goodbye. So that was uh, Gordon Pankala, um, the um, lawyer who gave us uh, an overview of um, the events of the last couple of years, how we um, can evaluate it at different levels, uh, policies, uh, legal profession, um, medical profession, how people got involved who got entangled and what we can derive uh, from this for forgiveness or non-forgiveness or how we can actually um, uh, judge this from a historical point of view. Um, so I hear that we don't have a uh, contact, uh, have connection to the next guest. I don't know if this is um, improved now. Otherwise, we can have another video that we can uh, watch. Maybe we can see that. And then we'll see whether our guest is back. Otherwise, we'll have a short break.
Okay, pure madness. Things that we have been through in the last months and years, and what it did to the people. Things that you can spend your time with, which were important aspects, how to protect yourself or think you could protect yourself. Okay, now we have the issue that we have a guest from Canada and he's not reachable at the moment. So I would propose we have a short break and uh, come back at four o'clock, probably earlier if we can get somebody in at short notice. Hello. Welcome back to our committee meeting. Unfortunately, our Canadian guest had a schedule issue, but we took the opportunity to get an update from Alcafontes. I think two weeks ago she was with us reporting about the um, vaccination victims group and that sparked a wave of enthusiasm and we would like to give an update and maybe inspire people who want to do a similar thing start up a self-help group uh, maybe they are affected themselves as well so maybe you could give us an update on how that developed well hello yes um, actually it's uh, it's been phenomenal we had uh, the session i spoke in the uh, committee and then in the evening, um, it was broadcast in the uh, MDR TV station about the initiative um, on the uh, self-help group that I um, founded with a help uh, with, with a friend, with Andrea. We started with five people and when it was broadcast, it was really phenomenal. Within the first 12 to 24 hours, many, many more people contacted us who want to initiate uh, their own self-help groups and who wanted uh, me to uh, tell them what um, can be done, what they uh, need to take into consideration in order to establish a self-help group. Yes, and uh, by now we have about 50 self-help groups nationwide that we were able to initiate that way where we uh, were able to point out uh, the problems in our own uh, self-help group in Stendal. Also got a massive push that way because there hadn't been any self-help group in Saxony-Anhalt, in, in the state of Saxony-Anhalt. Stendal is the first city where one was um, uh, created. And so um, everybody was talking about Stendal and people know that there's a self-help group and more and more people join us. So, there is some initial uh, success. We have uh, put um, people into contact with physicians and uh, uh, physios um, and um, alternative practitioners. And uh, for instance, uh, there is one who offers arthresis um, and was able to uh, apply it uh, with people uh, affected. It wasn't really anything we could have expected, and I expect that this way we can end this um, all over Germany, that we have this uh, divide and conquer uh, society. 
I think we should not make any distinction between black, white, green, red, left, right, red, green, or whatever, and certainly not um, discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And we found we're all people, and everybody uh, got vaccinated for their own reasons, and many people who are victims just said that they got vaccinated and really, truly believe that the vaccine will help them, that it will protect them uh, against COVID, and that they're not among those people who, uh, that they didn't want to be among the number of the people, uh, the numerous people killed by the disease, and that they also um, talked to their neighbors, friends, family, etc. So many people were uh, tricked by the government here. Many people uh, just passed on the incorrect information that were given by the government, and so I don't want to uh, play the blame game here or discriminate between uh, different uh, groups of people. I just want to say we have to help everybody as a uh, society, and we can do this. And that's the feedback we get. The people who are affected, who are victimized, who, uh, who have family who have been victimized, this is a great help for them that they can exchange information, that they can get connected, that they're taken seriously, that people listen to them. And I think that's a huge success. Maybe you can describe how or what an evening when you meet is like, how to do it, how, if you want to set this up for yourselves, what's the needs of the people and so on? Well, the first thing is what I did was I determined a date and time, basically, and uh, informed the press about it. And I said, okay, I'm establishing a self-help group which happens at such and such a time and such and such a place. Um, it's uh, on Wednesdays, 7 p.m. in Stendal, and you can um, find out about it with a, a parity uh, charity, um, and uh, they uh, supported um, that um, there was such a uh, self-help group under this name, and then um, published um, a, a list of the uh, 20 most frequent um, side effects uh, in different uh, publications in newspapers, daily uh, dailies. These things were published in dailies. And that brought people together. And what also happened is that we were contacted by lawyers who said that uh, they are uh, suing BioNTech and Pfizer and AstraZeneca, um, and they'd be uh, willing to uh, sue those companies on behalf of the victims. And um, we have one victim that I was uh, spoke about the last time. He used to be an athlete, and this is why he was very well uh, able to document his health status, his uh, uh, blood values were very well known, um, and so we will um, use um, these this data to uh, sue the manufacturers. And we also um, created a different um, association that we um, established in back in June, um, 
the purpose was to help people uh, with health effects with uh, physical limitations and we're um, collecting donations now so we can finance experts opinions uh, it's an uh, attempt uh, we don't know whether apheresis, for instance, um, can be a sexual flow resonance therapy that might be tried or high dosage of uh, vitamin C, maybe in different combinations with each other. We don't know whether it's effective, how long the effect will last, and because of their uh, long-term illness or um, unemployment, the uh, victims oftentimes don't have the money. Uh, to try these things, so we want to cooperate and work with each other and uh, make sure that this can happen. It's interesting to see this. There's uh, partly partial aspects of expertises which are of general interest. The effective effect of the of the mechanism of the vaccines, things that we have looked into here on the investigative committee. Uh, Professor Kemmerer worked on this. So there is kind of modules that could be used in uh, lawsuits and then this just needs to be individualized and customized for the new lawyers. Um, probably there's new uh, experts now coming in as well and uh, they may not be aware. But for example, if you meet, what happens? Is it the people simply explaining what happened to them? Probably you talk about the adverse effects that they have. They share tips and help and uh, how all of this came about and try to give each other support. What's the concrete content of an evening you meet? Well, people just talk about um, their week, the past week. Now there's new members joining us. We'll soon have to find different uh, a different location because we just don't have enough space anymore. We definitely need additional chairs. We don't have enough of those. And the room will soon not be sufficient either anymore. And uh, we have already um, uh, built up a connection with the people who have been around for a longer period, who have come uh, several times. And we had a lady who came back um, for the first time after three weeks, and there was an interruption, and we were worried. And she said, well, she uh, felt pretty well again. She had an excessive blood pressure, was afraid for her life. Um, at six years of age, she was afraid of not being able to participate in um, normal life anymore. And then she felt better. She went on holidays, and then she uh, was did so poorly suddenly that she spent most of her holiday in hospital. And we keep forgetting when we see people are doing better, their um, eyes are um, more lively again. Um, we could forget these uh, backlashes. Um, and the body is, of course, weakened so that it can hardly handle new infections. And it's very important to listen to each other, even if you can't do anything about it. But just the exchange um, to see you're not alone, um, taking people seriously, you bring a friend, a client, a neighbor, uh, etc. You talk about cases you heard about. In uh, this case, for instance, we had a soldier who really was um, uh, doing very well um, 
he was around 60 years old, and then he got uh, vaccinated and he passed. And after the postmortem, it became clear that he died uh, because of these um, very severe um, embolisms and brain hemorrhages um, that led to his uh, death. So you exchange information. We know each other as well. Uh, so that's the um, benefit that you know the physicians. And you can say, I went um, to such and such a physician with uh, su such and such um, complaints, and he uh, didn't take me seriously. He sent me away. He wouldn't um, um, give me a mass certificate. He um, sent me away. I can't get treatment, so we can maybe recommend a different physician. And this group is actually open for non-victims of the vaccinations. If you say you can bring friends along, people can, somebody, you have someone who has a vaccination victim in the family, but they're not as far yet to be able to talk about it. And they don't uh, really admit to it yet. And so people could get informed as a relative, for example. Is that possible? Well, yeah, let me say yes and no. On the one hand, family are very important to be supported because they're completely helpless, because they can't change the suffering and sometimes um, have a, a real nursing job that they assume. So we need maybe a different um, for, for family members, that's an important aspect, seriously. We must not forget about this and what these family members actually do, you know, all the work they do. But on the other hand, we don't want to uh, uh, protect the victims so they can be uh, among each other and that they can trust so that they don't become a sort of a, um, exhibit almost. And we have to be very careful here, and I always um, stand up in front of the self-help group uh, so we don't have the uh, impression that we have a separation again, because uh, vaccinated people might be very um, uh, severely uh, damaged, and then the unvaccinated uh, like to say uh, we, because they luckily um, saw through this early on and had the right sources to be able to take the decision against the vaccination. And that could um, lead to a separation again. And I think that's very, very important to be aware of this, um, that if we are unvaccinated, that we uh, fall in line and uh, give support rather than um, opening up another such division again. And that's very difficult to do. I think that's a very important point to make if you say this about 50 interested people to found self-help groups. This are the kind of things that they have to be aware of. And it's be good to maybe have a little manual or a guideline if you don't have um, this to summarize these things, what to look out for, how to uh, talk to a relative who's very concerned. Um, but and how to talk to them, but maybe they're not um, the right person to join a meeting. 
So this is something that you may be offering a group for. We've had this of other uh, diseases, uh, people with MS, for example, and the relative. It's very difficult to see a relative uh, or a dear person who is restricted more and more due to the disease. I think it's very important to have this and to do this. And I think the people who start setting up such groups can benefit from your experience and don't have to go through everything themselves with bad experiences, perhaps, and things like that, um, having to redesign the new drive and uh, maybe jeopardizing that. Uh, do you provide anything information-wise? Yes, we've considered that before, but we've already arrived at some conclusions. Now, what happens is this association is called uh, Gut Gelingen, so good success. And we decided to be 100% transparent that uh, everything we do is uh, shown in a transparent way. Well, I can't uh, install a quality management for every self-help group in uh, across Germany. But in France, for instance, um, this has arrived as well. Now, unfortunately, the uh, signal has dropped. We can't hear you anymore, Alkia. Can the producers contact her? So we've been interrupted. However, our next guest is down the line is in the line. Let me just check whether we can reconnect to Alkia. Okay, you're back. Please just, uh, I don't know if you carried on talking. We couldn't hear you when you started talking about the association, the society, Gut Gelingen, good, good success, and what you can't do and it's to do a quality what you can't do is a quality management for everybody who wants to set up such a group right yes so there's an email address um, that you can find on our website and every self-help group across germany that is established uh, where i have a contact partner i will uh, list them on the website so on the website you can see that as somebody is actually um, dealing with this that I'm familiar with, so I can't uh, know about all of these things. I don't want to know about all of those things that happen in the individual self-help groups. But I can at least say that there is one person, usually the person who started the group, uh, is someone that I know personally, and um, I can at least indicate the place of the self-help group with the contacts. Uh, on my website and we um, decided that there were uh, great um, help offers and experience from uh, um, healers and physicians and we also uh, want to uh, connect the uh, medical staff among each other so we have one physician who 
came up with a guideline. He uh, uh, strengthens the immune system, the fundamental um, structural setup of um, victims so they can handle um, problems better. And so I want uh, we want to make sure that everybody who wants to help doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. We want to summarize experience and do it via this website so that you can actually um, contact uh, uh, so that uh, physicians can contact each other. I mean, we mustn't um, forget the healers here who um, have a very high um, importance here as well. Yeah, the good thing about the healers is that they have a holistic approach to health, and we are in a completely new area where we can't say take a single drug and say that's going to help because it is such a multiple picture that we see many things have been generalized so if i have an immune issue then it could uh, express in many different points um, i can treat the symptoms or i can try to treat the root cause and um, of course i'm not so much about that uh, topic. I'm not a doctor, but I think it's a very good approach, and I think it's very good to have this uh, uh, flooding kind of situation here now in terms of the foundations of these groups. And I think it's very important um, to meet. Uh, you can make friendships there as well. We had this when we made the film vaccinated. Now we talk to the people who participated in the film and who are from Berlin uh, met afterwards and became friends. So I think that's a very nice and good thing. And uh, it's good to see new connections to be established here uh, after uh, you have overcome the basic uh, threat. Well, that kind of thing has emerged with us as well. Uh, interestingly enough, some people knew each other already and they found, oh, you're a victim as well. All right. Or then uh, uh, some people knew uh, were known from the film um, well. And of course, as a um, first aider, you get around a bit. Um, then another person, um, another victim was a photographer. He gets around as well, is well known. So um, it moves on. And uh, one nice piece of information one victim not uh, shown on the uh, film by the MDR. Uh, she had three elderly ladies in a round and they said, okay, I'll get vaccinated again for the fourth time. Now uh, it's coming, it's, it's due. And then the victim said, well, uh, don't you, haven't you heard of the self-help group in Stendhal? There's a lot of victims there. So she uh, asked them, uh, do you really want to take uh, another booster? Do you want to take the risk again? That happens a lot as well. And then the uh, bottom line was, well, maybe we don't do it because there is a risk. And now, well, what is it going to uh, help who will uh, fall ill even if we're vaccinated? And that was really nice because it was a ripple effect outside of the victims. And then you talk about it. I think it's important that we allow the victims to speak out. Um, the uh, impacts um, 
in detail, but also the major impact and get the uh, get word out and but also strengthen and uh, support the uh, physicians who dare help, who want to help and who dare have a critical opinion there. In the physician's uh, journal, um, we could read again that, that the um, um, health insurance um, still supports the uh, vaccinations and the physician, uh, it's distributed to all physicians and the physicians who oppose this um, feel that they're alone. So they need to connect as well. No physician says, I am critical of the vaccination. Um, that won't be on the uh, website. Oh, uh, they won't write, uh, I, uh, I'm not um, administering any vaccine, uh, uh, COVID vaccines anymore. So I believe it's important to support the physicians and healers um, in order to help the victims, but also to get the physicians together who are critical, who have had a terrible experience with their own uh, patients. So the people who work in the medical profession and see all those side effects, and that's a lot of them. It's great. And everybody who joins a group like this becomes a multiplicator, a multiplier, and uh, can uh, discuss this in a much more credible way, much more, for example, like we can here, who are just theoretically concerned with the issue. So if you have people who are personally affected, it is much more convincing um, if people can talk about their problems and how they could have been helped. So I think it's very, very good. I, um, I'm very happy that you triggered this wave. And um, I think we can uh, repeat this discussion um, at some point in the future. And maybe this little update will lead to more people uh, thinking on how to start and to start such a self-help group. Of course, um, this is something that is, of course, internationally here, Switzerland and so on. There may be people, Austria people who are uh, affected. So maybe that initiative could be moved forward to the different countries. I don't know what the status is in these countries. Maybe people can network in that way. Yeah, of course. We'll certainly pass on the guideline. And uh, I forgot earlier, with the lawsuits, uh, we will certainly fall back on the extensive knowledge uh, collated by the um, committee here. Um, we will have to do that. And it's great that we have this huge body, body of knowledge that we can use as a basis uh, for um, use in the individual case, and that'll certainly um, a good thing, and we'll definitely do this. So this is a very valuable resource. Yes, and we're happy to provide that. We can talk to our experts as well and the lawyers to prepare a respective uh, expertise, maybe with text modules that you can use, or maybe a first initial letter to address people. So we could think of this. Um, I think that is, of course, a bit too complex in order to generalize this, and you can't do this on your own. But I think, in general, those lawyers who want to um, get engaged here can benefit from the knowledge which is already available. Thank you, Alkir. Congratulations to that initiative. 
I am very, I wish very much that um, you will be able to help people and people will be able to help themselves uh, to see a positive development in their lives. And I think it's uh, very good to sit together with other peoples and to find out that you are not alone with the problems that you have. Yeah, definitely. And I'm very grateful for it. And I think it's only a small start. What's coming down the line now is huge. It's, it's unmeasurably large. We can't really see uh, the dimensions of it all. Uh, I'll need help with organization, uh, organizing this. Um, but I, I accept this challenge. That's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm willing to um, assume responsibility for society. Um, looking the other way is not an option for me. Very good. So we'll keep it up. Thank you for your update and we'll stay in contact. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. That was Alke Fontes who just gave us an update on the vaccination victim self-help group that she um, founded in Sachsen-Anhalt in Stendal with a report on the mainstream media sparking a wave of new groups to be founded. So if you are interested to take part in that movement, just contact her, gutgelingen.de, contact her, feel free, and uh, you can contact us. I think we'll publish something like uh, in the respect on our Telegram channel. I'm happy to see that good development. And now we have our next guest with us. Dr. Jessica Rose. Hi, Vivian. Hello. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Hear me well? Yes. Yes, we can hear you very well at the, yeah. Um, so, you have quite an impressive um, CV. Maybe would you like to introduce yourself a little bit uh, to the audience so people know what your background is? Sure. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm I'm fighting the longest cold ever, so I'm going to be clearing my throat a bit. Um, <clears throat> I am a Canadian researcher. I started um, my academic career in applied mathematics, where I learned all about epidemiological modeling of viruses. And uh, I wanted to apply what I learned in my applied mathematics degree to viruses. So I went and did an immunology degree where I learned uh, all about HIV immunopathogenesis. And uh, I went on to do a PhD in computational biology, which was also meant to be all about HIV. But it turned out to be more about cytomegalovirus, which is another kind of pathogenic viruses, virus in humans. And then um, in the pursuit of uh, learning more about uh, pathogens that aren't viruses, I did some uh, molecular biology research uh, in rickettsia, uh, which is a uh, bacterial pathogen that it lives in ticks. Uh, I specialized in hard-shelled ticks. And uh, I also did a postdoc in biochemistry where I was looking more at um, proteins, uh, basically, delivery molecules for cells, um, and so and so. And the reason why I'm, uh, I'm I suppose, prevalent now in the, the fight against the COVID narrative is because 
I've been trying to um, bring to light some truths that are coming out of adverse event data collection systems pertaining to um, reports being filed in the context of the COVID-19 injectable products. Um, there's a lot to talk about there, continues to be interesting. Um, and it's amazing how I've been doing this for about two and a half years now, I suppose. And there are still so many people who don't even know that there's a huge discrepancy in absolute count and uh, et cetera, et cetera, the range of adverse events being reported to bears in the context of these products mm -hmm. when you compare them to the last 30 years of data. So that's me in a nutshell. Okay, that's quite a large nutshell. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be great. Um, so you have uh, several um, topics today. Maybe you just want to um, go ahead with what you've prepared, prepared for today? Um, sure, I, I can do that. Um, the I know one of the things on the list was um, a... Uh, a paper that was all the rage, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago. Um, it's been a while since I reread it, but basically it revealed um, that there were uh, some researchers in a lab at Boston University who were designing and experimenting with new versions of the coronaviruses that we're all pretty familiar with now. So what they had done was that they had taken the backbone of the original Wuhan strain and embedded it with the spike proteins of the Omicron, the most recent Omicron variant. And in doing so, they turned the pretty much innocuous Omicron uh, virion into something that was almost as equally pathogenic as the original Wuhan strain. So instead of killing 100% of the mice that were humanized, which means that they have the ACE2 receptor that binds the spike protein from humans, um, it killed 80%. So it was pretty lethal. Um, they published this, they published uh, the recipe, which is disturbing, yes, but Perhaps the most interesting thing about it is um, the amazing conversations that are being raised now about whether or not this is truly gain-of-function research. Um, I think it qualifies. And why they're doing it in the first place. How potentially dangerous is this? And I mean, you can go really far with your questioning and, and ask, is this another red herring? Um, in the context of what's coming next, because um, we don't know what's coming next, do we? We, we hear talk about a, a new pandemic being released, and uh, when you consider the fact that there are labs around the world who are doing these kinds of uh, experiments and this research, you kind of have to wonder what might happen next. Well, it seems to be, I mean, if we're considering like the possibility of lab leaks, it seems to be kind of irresponsible to some extent to to engage in this kind of research to begin with. Absolutely. I think it's beyond irresponsible. I think it's uh, 
I mean, whether or not you believe in God, the, you know, the playing with God um, idea is relevant. I mean, it's, it's definitely messing with nature because, I mean, nature does what it does because it inherently kind of goes with this flow, as we all know. I've never, ever, ever been someone who's uh, thought that any any messing with genetics was a good idea because you know nature she already figured all this out so any attempt to improve uh anything that nature is already perfected in my opinion is asking for trouble um and and human beings i don't know we we tend to be so arrogant uh in the science realm um a lot of people think that there's a lot of nefariousness going on, and I don't doubt that there is, but I think a lot of what we're seeing is um, just ignorance and arrogance, truly. I, I think that a lot of people, they either don't know what they're doing, and I, I mean that literally, but they're not aware of what their work is going to be used for, if we're talking about like designing bioweapons, et cetera. And a lot of other people assume that nothing will go wrong because perhaps they think that we're impervious to uh, to being decimated. Not not to get too like dark, but <laughs> yeah. So with regards to this possible um, pathogen, um, I mean, we heard from uh, Dr. Wolfgang Wodak. You know, he's often mentioned that it's like really hard to design a. Um, a very deadly virus that uh, would have an effect on a large amount of uh, people because like usually if it's really a super deadly virus you see the other person drop dead like or at least die within a short amount of time and then um, you know you keep away from them I mean if, if they are bleeding um, everywhere or whatever so um, how likely or like what in this case this um, but I, I mean what I wanted to say is it all depends also of the incubation time I mean if we have some something that's really lethal and it's it, you know it's going to kill you like after six months and you're highly infective um, and you know you spread the disease to someone else like or the you know the the virus then then there might be a lot of people who um without everyone noticing might catch the the disease um but um so what is um so it depends on that aspect like in this this deadly pathogen uh, SARS-CoV-2 variant whatever is that um how long is is that uh, incubation time do we know anything about that um uh, well i mean that's up for debate still i mean um I, I think it again, my, my answers are usually the same. It depends on so many different factors. Um, it, but I have no doubt in my mind that the person who are suffering um, the severe adverse events and, and of course, death, um, they don't necessarily have to have these things happen acutely. Uh, we're seeing a lot of delayed, even by months, uh, inductions of severe pathologies. Uh, and and some of them lead to death. So there does seem to be some kind of, I'm not sure, well, you know what? I'm not sure I wouldn't call it an incubation period because I don't know what we're dealing with yet. Some part of me sometimes sees a parallel between the chronic phase of HIV and what we're seeing now. 
Now, I, I don't want to say that's what's happening. I don't want to equate this to HIV, but the pattern looks the same to me sometimes. And this is something I started to look at, but I kind of got distracted. So one day I'll, I'm going to go back to this and I'll have a better answer. But just for those of you who don't know, there was a long period of time when we first started studying HIV. I mean, we've been looking at HIV for decades now, and we still don't know a lot about it. So we're still in the very preliminary phases of examining what we're dealing with here. We don't know what we're dealing with here. We have a lot of excellent ideas. And, and there are like 10 people in the world having amazing discussions about this. But as you know very well, uh, the, 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 the outward discussion is being suppressed. So it's very difficult to come to a consensus these days, but we're trying. But in the, in the okay, so HIV has uh, basically three phases that we know of, the acute phase, the chronic phase, and AIDS. So the acute phase is when you get the flu-like symptoms, when you get your antibodies on the go, your T cells explode, you, you develop immunity. Problem with HIV is that it has this uh, latency, which means that it can, and it integrates into the genome of our cells. So it hides in, in cells that aren't yet activated. So basically you have a perpetual um, potential for reinfection, reactivation and reinfection. So, and the other bad part about HIVs are the, um, the specific cells that it infects. So you have uh, decimation of your CD4 positive T cells, which are your, your leaders of the army. So it's bad for, for a few counts, but the point I'm making is that during this chronic phase, which is, I don't know, something like 10 years, you have this enormous amount of activity going on with, with T cells. And we didn't know this until, in fact, a mathematical modeler, he, he was my PI for my, my, um, my post or my PhD, uh, came along and showed that the rate of, um, of reproduction of the virus was really, really high. So we didn't know that all of this activity was going on because it looked like symptomatically nothing was going on. So it took uh, the combination of many fields and efforts to discover that even though it looked like everybody was fine following the acute phase, they actually weren't. They were kind of silently being destroyed inside. So I don't want to scare anyone, but sometimes I'm reminded of that with this. And the reason it, it concerns me is this prion idea. Because if we're not actually dealing with like a virus-like virus, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> if we're dealing more with like a, an infective protein or a protein or, or a, a particle that, um, that has properties of prions, whereby the, the subsequent proteins that are manufactured fold, uh, misfold, and, and perhaps teach other proteins to misfold as well, that would be absolutely disastrous um, in a lot of people. And unfortunately, we are seeing reports of prion diseases and Kreutzfeldt-Jakob, which are far above background rates in bears. So I'm keeping a really steady eye on that. Um, so as far as definitively answering the question we can't get because we don't know enough. Um, 
there's no point in not trying to get it. Everybody's probably had it already. And our immune systems do seem to be responding very functionally well against it. It's just, it just seems like in some people, um, just like in the case of HIV, not to draw the parallel again, some people do worse than others. Um, so we have to figure this out. We have to figure out the immunological race between what we're dealing with, with this SARS thing and our immune systems. Um, so, but, but yeah, uh, Wolfgang is absolutely right about the, um, you know, if they, if they wanted to do something really, I, I don't know who they are, but there's a lot of people thinking that, um, along the lines of a bioweapon. And if you actually want to destroy a large part of the population, you can't release something really deadly because it'll just burn out quickly. So you would have to release something that would kind of slowly and silently destroy. Um, yeah, maybe it's getting too dark. <laughs> it is dark, very dark. But uh, I mean, here we we also have to, the, I mean, you know, it's sort of an, um, an issue that in the the, the so-called vaccines we have the same spike um, element in there so uh, it's also going to be very hard to distinguish between the people who might I mean okay if it's this new version uh, then maybe we can track it like do you know which uh, if this version caused the this people dropping dead like uh, by the uh, in, in in the range of like 80 percent but on the other hand I mean with this in do you know this um this vaccine spike, um, we see similar effects in the body, and it also has this insertion, as I understood, of this HIV aspect in it, because it's this Wuhan uh, sequence. Um, so uh, it's going to be very hard to distinguish between, like a, uh, you know, like something that's natural or like after some treatment occurring virus um, problem that the people have, or like results uh, or effects of the uh, vaccination. What, what would you say? Um, are you asking about like um, finding evidence of spike in from autopsies? Is that what you mean? Well, yeah, but like I mean, we see that we have the same spike as in the in the virus. We have that um, you know represented in the vaccine. So we don't know like mm, what right. what okay, kind I of see. effects we're going to look at. And I was wondering because I've this we've been discussing that behind the scenes, like with um, you know a a group of of scientists i was wondering this insertion in the um in the spike um uh, sequence rna uh, sequence that um is that the um hiv aspect do we know what that does what's what that that does um, if it was like the real hiv aspect uh, well i'm i'm going to say no I know two people who might have a better idea than I. All I can say is it's very suspicious where these four um, mm -hmm. peptides uh, reside on the spike trimer. They're 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 very exposed, and and I think I mentioned this last time. Uh, in terms of binding, um, which is what what this receptor is for, the mm -hmm. its only function really well. Not only, its primary function is to bind the ACE2 receptor to, to, to allow for fusion and entry of the viral contents into cells. So binding sites are very uh, important. They need to be uh, 
um, on the outside. They need to be exposed. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's very curious that all four of these peptides that were introduced that don't exist in the original SARS um, are highly exposed when you look at the conformation, when you look at the structure of the spike trimer. So as for the functionality and what exactly they're doing, I'm not sure, but um, there is a paper that draws a parallel between uh, um, an HIV uh, um, flappy bit, and it's actually called a flap, that has to do with uh, binding affinity. So, so the spike protein also has one of these, and and I'm, I, I don't want to draw parallels again, but th th there there are some ideas coming out that relate the two. Um, I've written a substack about this, about the fact that even though, and, and I'm, I'm doing it again, so I, I might as well just go for it. HIV and SARS are extremely different, but they're also similar in many, many ways. They both uh, gain entry into cells by the same means. HIV has GP120, GP41, they go through, undergoes a conformational change and gains entry by fusion. Spike protein, it, it, the spike does exactly the same thing using the S1 and the S2. They both have these flappy bits that, that control um, binding affinity. Anyway, um, the short answer is no, we don't know exactly. Um, but it begs the question, um, why are they there in the first place? Which is why, you know, it, it's an obvious question because none of them, not one of them is there in the original SARS. Why are they there? The fact that they were put there, and we know they were put there because we see the cutting sites, these restriction sites. This is another paper that recently came out that kind of provides a fingerprint for us molecular biologists to see like, hey, this is synthetic. This was made in a lab. Um, okay, they put them there, but why? So my, my I, don't, I don't think these are stupid people. I think these are really smart people. So they must have had either knowledge or an idea of what was going to happen. And this goes back to what I was saying before. Um, I, think a, I think a proportion of people uh, know very well what the potential dangers are or what the actual dangers are because they tested it. And it just didn't publish that data, which is something we're seeing a lot. And and a lot of people just have they're just lab monkeys and they have no idea, you know, what 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 their 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 molecular biology is going to be used for eventually. So, um, yeah, the short answer is I I don't know. We don't know yet. They're not supposed to be there. That's all we can say. So it's a kind of mysterious thing. Um... Yeah. Okay. Do you have another uh, here topic? Um, so you said, um, what is it? What is it we need to do to prove that the uh, COVID nineteen MNR injections cause harm and and the dual and how we can prove the dual dual mechanism of action? So what is it um, that we can actually? What what's necessary in our sort of train of of uh, evidence? Well, proof is really hard um, to acquire, first of all. Uh, we, we have tons of evidence, though. You can approach um, the, the, the novelty of the technologies 
from the, the lipid nanoparticle point of view or the, the modified mRNA point of view. The lipid nanoparticles themselves, if you just focus in on those, and there are a lot of people in the, the community now who believe that they're, they're like, they're not spike people at all. They, they believe that the lipid nanoparticles are doing all of the damage. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm, I'm in both camps. I think the, the damage is being done from both points of view. But if you take just the lipid nanoparticles, they're, they're comprised, the Moderna and the Pfizer recipes comprise four different lipids and two of which are known um, to have um, uh, allergic profiles and uh, toxic profiles. So the, the PEG, the polyethylene glycol molecules, which allow the lipid nanoparticle to slip and slide everywhere and evade immune responses, et cetera, um, those induce anaphylactic shock in a lot of people. So it, this, this is a known thing. We have published papers out the yin-yang to support this. So all you have to do is, is show that. That's one thing. But that's kind of known. The second thing are the cationic lipids themselves um, in each of the Pfizer and the Moderna products, they're different, are highly toxic. And this is not a secret either. This is well known. Um, the toxicity profile for the Moderna lipid nanoparticle SM102 is worse than gasoline when you look at it from a health point of view at the SDS sheet, the safety data sheet. Um, that's number two. Number three is that uh, these things not only biodistribute, like because, because of the, their design, they're designed to do so, the, the PEG ensures that in my opinion, um, they, they bioaccumulate. And this is not new information either. This is well documented in the Pfizer FOIA uh, um, study, this Japanese study, thanks to Byron Bridal. And there's a paper that was released that I've been presenting lately that's 10 years old that shows exactly the same thing that these FOIA requested documents show in the exact same animals, the Wistar rats, the exact same products, and the exact same organs, which are the ovaries. So we, we knew this 10 years ago that these things have a bad um, bio distribution and accumulation profile. So anybody saying these, these are not going to traffic to the ovaries was lying. They're, they weren't wrong. They were just lying. This is this was known and it was published. So the, these are all things that provide evidence. Um, but again, what we have are are these studies. This is evidence, and we have the leaves rustling in the wind, which is the the adverse event data that's collecting. I mean, it's 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 a pile of 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 bodies that is so large now. I mean, you can't look away from it. Uh, I knew this was going to happen, and it's getting bigger all the time. So, uh, just just if you you don't need to be like a rocket scientist to kind of ask a basic question: if these things were not meant to traffic to the ovaries, and they do, and they dump their modified mRNA payload, and let's just say, for example, you get your full length uh, spike template, just just for argument's sake, and you it's translated into this spike protein in copious amounts, like trillions or however many, in the ovary, what impact is that going to have? It, it can't possibly be good because it's not supposed to be happening. So 
you would expect if if you were a thinking person that something might go awry in terms of the reproductive cycle because the ovaries control the menstrual cycle basically you know you have your endocrine system working with your reproductive system so you might anticipate that there would be a disruption mm -hmm. and what are we seeing out the yin yang in adverse event reports in women menstrual cycle disruptions so again it's not proof but it's very very compelling evidence and that's all we're ever going to have in my opinion uh we 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 do need to start putting we are putting all of this together the doctors the lawyers um we need good judges though this is the next difficult step um so all we have is very 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 compelling evidence from that point of view and and I could go on about the spike as well uh the potential dangers of the spike but I think one of one of the most important question with regards to the nano lipids particles are there um, versions of that known that are non-toxic she's gone maybe she'll come back in a second Oh, am oh, I gone? Okay, yeah, now you're you're back again. Yeah, I, I don't know if you heard okay. me. Yeah. Um, not that I'm aware of, because of the nature of the uh, cationic lipids themselves, mm -hmm. um, they're they're designed to rupture membranes. So they're they're pretty devastating to cell membranes. That's how they function. So, not really. I mean, the, maybe um, you know, people would argue that. Um, uh they're they're not in, in in the long run they're not going to cause excessive amount of damage but here's the thing <laughs> even if that's true after one injection even if you clear the lipid nanoparticles if there is modified spike being um being translated that's an ongoing disruptive process and here's the worst part if you keep getting injected, you're getting repetitive doses of not only the lipid nanoparticles, but the mRNA. So the damage is going to be um, not only repetitive, but it's going to be cumulative in many cases. So, um, yeah, th these are the things I would think about on that on that question. <clears throat> and there's no other method of introducing this MNR uh, into cells, for instance, uh, with the non-toxic non-problematic vehicle not that they have discovered yet no that this would probably be their their best recipe so far mm -hmm. so yeah this is mrna transfection brand new um we we haven't done this before um i was having this discussion last night actually mm -hmm. um th this is transfection it's it's not uh it's not vaccination per mm -hmm. se Okay, so maybe now if you want to say something to the spike problems, spike protein. Well, yeah, well, you know, again, mRNA is a natural thing. We, we can't, nothing can exist without it. It's, it's, you know, it's part of the recipe of life. You know, we have DNA, messenger RNA and proteins. So uh, don't get confused about mRNA and thinking it's a bad thing. It's not. It's the bastardization of the concept and the messenger RNA that's um, dangerous here. 
So it's been modified in specific ways to be very, very stable. And published papers, again, have shown, provided evidence, strong evidence that these, um, not only the mRNAs, or actually I should say, not only the spike protein, pardon me, but the messenger RNA itself lingers in the germinal centers of the lymph nodes for up to 60 days. And that's just when they stopped measuring. There are other publications that have shown this, the existence or the presence of the spike protein months after. So the, we're, we're, we're looking at something that's very, two things that are very stable. And we were told, we were very, very, they were very clear and very parental with us about the fact that this is just going to like go into your body. It's going to do its thing and it's going to go away and you'll be fine. That's complete lies. These things were designed. They were modified with intention to be very stable and to be very uh, immune evading. So that's why the, the, the uridines were substituted out for the pseudo-uridines. Anyway, um, the, 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 these are big problems. And uh, again, there, there's devious, deviousness here because as I just said, we were definitively told from the point of view of the lipid nanoparticles that these things were not going to biodistribute. They would stay at the injection site, do their job. We were also told that the mRNA was uh, not stable and that it would degrade very quickly and that, you know, you wouldn't have a problem. And it doesn't seem like from the peer-reviewed literature that's coming out now, and it's just started, that either of these things are correct, which means that as the uh, the data is FOIA'd, uh, freedom of inter information requested, and, and accessible to the public and to the researchers, we're, we're probably going to find more and more that um, at least the pharmaceutical companies were sitting on knowledge and that they were just lying to push their product effectively. And, you know, it's, it's, it's on the CDC, it's on the FDA, it's on all the three-letter organizations to, um, to do their jobs and to protect the public from bad products. That's their job. That's their only job. So I, I, I think that everybody's well aware of the dangers going on. I think they always were. Mm -hmm. I think that it was just going to get in the way of the agenda of getting this stuff into every single arm. I mean, it's incredible to me after two and a half years that they're still pushing it. It's, it's insane. It's like even the people who are really, really like for this, are starting to scratch their heads and say, why do I need to get a sixth dose? You know what I mean? It's like, why does my baby have to get one? They're not affected. You know what I mean? It's like, they're still pushing this onto every single person and there's no logic. Yeah, <laughs> they, they've true. really, really, um, they, they've uh, worn out their welcome on herd immunity. They've worn out their welcome on uh, this being an emergency. I mean, everything is just like, so it blows my mind that they're still pushing it. Yeah, it's amazing that they're not also <laughs> starting to look at the at the side effects much more in detail. All that. I was wondering, are yeah. you in are you in scientific uh, conversation with um, researchers who have um, has have so far believed in the you know validity of the, the studies or like have have believed the corona narrative and are now looking at the 
the uh, emerging findings and you know are you talking to them and what kind of reaction do they show are they now uh, starting to get a little bit upset or worried about what's going on me personally no yeah. but i'm observing it happening i mean asim alatra um and john campbell is coming around and there's a whole bunch of people who are um you know they're, they're just they're slow but they're they're still good scientists and they still have um that thing that inquisitive nature that makes you a good um scientist i guess is the right word um and it doesn't matter how strongly you know the narrative is being pushed the truth is the truth and so there there are people and there are some stronger voices coming out um but as for my own personal connections um can't say i can think of anyone <laughs> most of my uh my colleagues are you know they they're just um they've always kind of seen that there was a problem um but again i don't i don't have a very large community <laughs> it's like three people <laughs> mm -hmm. but which which are the uh the bigger names that you can now see uh you know publicly uttering doubts asim alotra i mean i i don't think i'm saying his name right but the this british md i mean he's he was very much uh, on tv promoting uh the the injections and now he's 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 very much you know switch 180 and now he, he's very um um clear about the fact that these things are causing injuries and we absolutely have to stop lying about that and find out what's going on so um yeah and I, you know uh, joe rogan is also he, he's been pretty good about uh just staying neutral about asking good questions. The guy's really smart and he's had some good guests on and he's not afraid to have the right people on to have engaging um, and uh, sometimes controversial conversations. So, I mean, yeah, there are people like that. Um, uh, Majid Nawaz, I mean, he's he's always been on our side uh, on, on, on this front, I believe, or, or maybe uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, he's he's a fantastic voice um for for truth right now um i interviewed with him the other uh well actually it was a few weeks ago it was it was absolutely wonderful um yeah i don't know there's um neil oliver but he's always been speaking the truth um uh well, yeah, i don't know I, okay. I, um i have a where there are, are a lot you... of great voices where are you now based? Where uh, at an undisclosed location. <laughs> okay, undisclosed location. In your undisclosed location, do you um, have, um, do you now also observe, like we do in Germany, that there's now a lot of talk about um, forgiveness? You know, that the politicians are coming out now saying, oh, well, I mean, we shouldn't be like uh, so tough on the people who like uh, to their best efforts, try to prevent uh, the, the Corona crisis and all that. And we should now really like uh, start talking again to one another and in the end, maybe forgive what's been going on. Do you see that as well as a topic coming out? No, but um, I think it's important uh, I, I think compassion and empathy are going to rule the day. 
ultimately, but I think people also shouldn't be naive. And I don't think people uh, who've clearly been um, been divisive should get a, uh, a free ticket out of jail. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's very, um, I mean, I don't like Twitter. I got banned from Twitter. But one of the good things about it that I've been seeing um, is that you can screenshot what people have been saying throughout the entire thing. And a lot of people are just saying one thing and then doing another. And so you can catch them in their tracks. And, and those people, I'm not saying I'm, I'm against forgiveness. I'm 100% pro-forgiveness. And if you're authentic about being repentful and, 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 uh, and, and really, really, really admit that you made huge mistakes and, and that perhaps you even caused deaths, I'm not saying those people shouldn't be forgiven and we shouldn't work together with them because we are going to need each other. But again, I I don't think uh, a lot of people should get a free pass. Um, there's absolutely no way anybody at the regulatory bodies do not know what's going on here. So I don't think any of them should get a free pass. Um, I know that a lot of people are afraid. Uh, a lot of people don't want to lose their jobs which is deplorable that people are in that position. But um, hey, why, why is it always a handful of people that have to, uh, to suffer for the, for the many? I, I guess that's human nature. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and on that note, I have to run to my next meeting. What perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Um, is there any, I don't know if we have any questions from the audience, uh, Corvin? I have a couple of minutes. Yeah, I think we're almost done. Um, just want to check. You're so happy. You're so happy. Well, I'm not quite happy. sure if we have. Just uh, for your, like in the, the I think we have not, um, uh, explored so much the the you know the topic under uh, number one these uh, little uh, known epigenetic factors of the COVID nineteen vaccines maybe could you just like summarize uh, a few give us just a few bullet points on what the new findings are how the science is moving ahead um, I, I'm not up to date so I wouldn't be able to comment but I I implore everybody on the subject of the po potential epigenetic uh, factors in the injections to read the paper on the double-stranded DNA breaks. Um, I can find the title quickly and uh, read it to you. It was retracted, but all the papers that have been retracted are the ones you should read. Mm -hmm. And I'm not Yeah, kidding. that would be good. We should um, also share it. Maybe it's going to inspire also like some of the other scientists that we're working with. Just a second. Okay, so I wrote a substack called Do the COVID-19 Injections Contain Epigenetic Factors Including or Inducing Cancer, Autoimmunity, Neurological Dis Disorders, Diabetes, and more? I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, I think it does have to do with the spike. I, I am on the spike side of things to a degree. And the paper that everybody needs to read um, is called SARS-CoV-2 spike impairs DNA damage repair and inhibits VDJ recombination in vitro. Mm -hmm. 
It's an, an essential, it's essential reading. And, and if you're not really an academic and you want a, a great video summary of this paper, go to Dr. Beans, uh, Dr. Mubeen. Um, he has videos and he explains papers with uh, cartoons really well, and he does this paper really well. Um, so I recommend that. Uh, Fantastic. Maybe could you send the link to Corvin? I think we should share it. I mean, that's very interesting because it's sometimes these things are so um, specialized, it's really hard to get your head around. Uh, if you're not a scientist oh, yourself. Oh, yeah, but... this guy, Dr. Bean, he, he's he's a gem. Um, he, I, I've been dying to get to uh, to be on his uh, his show because sometimes he has guests on and he, he just, he does a really lovely, um, he has a lovely way of explaining very difficult science uh, with cartoons. So like even kids can follow along. Um, I will find it right now and I will send it to you. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Um, wow, he has so many antibody. He does antibody dependent enhancement. Uh, he, yeah, he does everything. Um, let's see. I need some more keywords here. One second. Oh, I know. BDJ recombination. Okay. Um, I think I, we don't want you uh, to keep you longer because you have your next appointment, as you said. Um, maybe just send it to Corvin and we're going to link it on on the on our Telegram channel so people can find it because I think it's going to be it's very uh, insightful. I think. And these, I'm also there really I curious. Found it. And I sent it. Super. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much for giving us this update of um, what's been going on. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch and uh, who knows what's going to develop in the future. So it's an ongoing, it's a developing story, we must say. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the, the truth will out. I, I have no doubt. Um, it's just too bad that so much crap has to happen and so much damage has to be done on the way. Um, but punching through... Um, Censorship has always been hard, but we'll prevail. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure too. Okay, thanks so much for for all this information. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, we spoke to Dr. Jessica Rose, um, biologist, researcher, and data analyst uh, from an undisclosed location, who gave us um, some more insights into what's been going on uh, in the the body after vaccination, and also with regards to a. Um, yeah, a possible more lethal pathogen that was um, that's artificial. Uh, yeah, now we have a next guest uh, is Biro um, Pantatsatos. Are you with us? Hi. Hello. Hi. Nice How to you? see you. Nice to How you. are you? Good. Um, yeah, you are a clinical neurobiologist and data scientist at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Um, maybe would you like to give us a little bit more about your background? Sure. Um, that's that's my position. Currently, I'm on leave as I'm waiting to hear back from an exemption. So I'm currently on leave. So I just wanted to clarify that. Mm -hmm. um, but that is my normal uh, position is uh, research uh, in the area of clinical neurobiology, brain imaging, 
um, with a focus on psychiatric neuroscience. Um, but I also have lots of experience in, in health informatics and biomedical data science more generally. Um, uh, so I hope that um, that gives. Um, yeah, that's great. So I think we know where your expertise is. Um, and you brought uh, today um, for us some um, information about um, um, a study that you co-authored on MNR-induced fertility rates. Um, yeah. It's or fatal yeah, fat fatality. 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 Yeah. Fatality. Yeah. Fatality yep. rates. Mm -hmm. Yes, so I can present that work, um, and I was also asked to present uh, another some work related to a post on um, uh, whether the vaccines have a delayed uh, a delayed time to uh, their ad adverse uh, mortality yes. uh, event. So I can present that as mm -hmm. well. Um, so I'm okay with people asking questions. I don't know the the, the normal format, but if um, I don't know if you allow people to ask questions in the middle of yeah. the talk or at well i mean we have um it's usually it's like this you uh, present your paper and sometimes maybe i have a question or we have from the audience a question that might um come in between and otherwise um mm -hmm. at the end of the presentation is also possible depending on yeah. if there's anything to clarify or so sure so i'll share my slides um, All right, so I'll share my screen. So you can see my screen okay? Yeah, we can see it. Okay, okay. Um, right, so I'll, so I'll be presenting um, some work that aims to get at a data-driven estimate of uh, mortality risk uh, from COVID vaccination to aid in uh, age benefit uh, ratio, uh, risk benefit ratio analysis across um, age. Uh, so this was one paper, this was floated around at my university as um, I believe this was the paper that was one of the papers that, that prompted them to mandate the first booster, um, the third dose of the, the COVID vaccine. Um, so in this paper, like with many other papers that are published, they focus on the benefits of the vaccine, which in this case, um, the main headline is that they lowered mortality by 90%. Um, to the author's credit, in this paper, they in the main text, they actually do present the limitations of their study that uh, limit their um, their claims somewhat, uh, such as confounding uh, sociodemographic and clinical characteristics that may have led to a bias in the analysis of effectiveness. Um, and uh, most importantly, the most important limitation of this study is it did not uh, go into any of the data on the serious adverse events with the first booster, um, which, is a, which is a major limitation. Um, so that's the yeah, so that is the main motivation of why I undertook this study as because there's, as this audience is probably well aware, there's limited data, uh, hard quantitative data on the uh, these serious, or at least at the time that the paper came out, the preprint, which is about 10 months ago, over a year ago, actually, um, there was very limited data. Now there's much more out there. 
But if you visited the the CS the US CDC website to try to get more information about the risks, um, that of course you would want to weigh against the benefits of any treatment. Um, in this case, the COVID vaccination, uh, you would uh, likely um, see that they recognize the, uh, allergic reactions as well as uh, myocarditis or pericarditis. Um, and all they really say is that they're rare. Uh, well, the question is how rare? And the other question is if, if you do have a case of myocarditis, how serious is it? What percentage of people that have a uh, clinical diagnosis of myocarditis are able to return to their normal activities? Uh, and within what time frame? how long does it take them to recover? Um, so lots of questions that are not answered by uh, the, the US CDC website, for example. Um, the other the other adverse event that they do mention is the allergic reactions, anaphylaxis. Here they cite uh, a, a two studies. In this case, uh, both use the uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system, which is a passive uh, reporting system for uh, monitoring uh, adverse reactions. And because it's passive, it tends to underestimate the actual true risks. Um, so their website does mention um, the mortality risk, which again is based on, on VAERS. Um, and in this case, uh, when this was pulled up, there was, um, I believe, yeah, so this is outdated, but the main, the main idea is to show you that the CDC reports a mortality risk based on taking the number of deaths reported against the vaccine in VAERS, which is, a, um, yeah, I, I don't think I have to explain what VAERS is to this crowd. Um, and then dividing that number by the total number of vaccine doses that were administered in the United States during the same period that VAERS was actively uh, receiving reports of adverse events. And when they do that, they, they arrive at a number which is 0.0022%, which is the, the, the estimated mortality risk given uh, a person takes a vaccine dose. Um, so of course there are limitations to this um, system, um, the two main limitations are um, that it, because it is passive, um, it suffers from under ascertainment bias, and it and one study suggested could be as low as one percent. The other um, limitation is that uh, these reports are often not um, followed up on uh, with with pathology uh, studies and more. Um, studies to confirm that the the vaccine uh, is what caused the event. Um, so there's no there's no verification process uh, or strict verification process that's in place. Um, so that is one limitation of the VAERS. The other system that in the US um, that is used to oops. Oh, sorry, I had a second part. This was supposed to something's wrong with my slide, but uh, if you can imagine, in the second part, um, I was going to describe the vaccine safety data link, which is another um, method that is used to monitor uh, safety from the vaccines. And that is basically uh, a network of electronic, uh, electronic health records, millions of electronic health records from several uh, uh, hospital sites, major hospital sites, um, where they can estimate the incidence of adverse events based on uh, EMR data. 
so so like I said, the problem with the VARES, um, and actually this was uh, this was an analysis that Jessica Rose had uh, previously written um, a while back last year, um, where she basically looked at um, an active uh, surveillance study, in this case, uh, the Blumenthal et al., uh, which actually actively monitored for adverse events from the vaccine. So they followed up with people um, they didn't just sit back and wait to receive reports. They actually had, um, it was like a trial basically, and they monitored and followed up with each person. And there they calculated a rate of anaphylaxis at about 2.47 per 10,000 vaccinations, um, which is much higher, which is about 22 to 90 times larger than the estimates that were reported based on VAERS. Uh, sorry, can I ask one yeah. question? Yeah, please. This, this uh, data collection from the hospitals, does that show a different picture than the VAERS results? The, uh, yeah, I'll go into that. So the vaccine safety data link is very interesting. It does show a different picture and in a way that raises more questions than answers them. Uh, so I will go into those uh, into a second. Um, so it's a great question. Oh, here. I'm sorry. Yeah. So on this slide, I <laughs> mm -hmm. so that's a perfect segue. Uh, yeah. So this this slide is um, where discussing the other major uh, vigilance system, which is the vaccine safety data link. Um, and a major limitation of this one is that they don't make the the raw data available. So any data, any paper that's published, um, they only make the final data set available for reanalysis. And even then you have to apply and it's a drawn out process and you cannot get earlier versions of the data set. Uh, so, which is a major limitation in terms of transparency and uh, rigor and reproducibility. And I will go into some of the conclusions that used this data set. The first of which is uh, this one by Klein et al. Um, where they looked at about 20 major adverse events and they monitored um, those events uh, and compared them, what the rate uh, one, to 20, one to 21 days post-vaccination compared to a later window of 22 to 42 days post-vaccination. Um, so of course you can see that a problem with that is that if your risk window is six weeks, which is generally the accepted risk window um, for that one would uh, want to monitor for adverse events following vaccination. Um, in some cases, according to this paper, it's even longer, uh, it could be up to 77 days. Um, if you're comparing two windows, the ra rates within two windows that are both within the risk period, you're not gonna see a safety signal. Um, so that's one problem with the design of of this of this study. Mm -hmm. um, the other problem is if you if you look into their supplement um, and you look at this this table e six, you see some discrepancies in terms of um, the fact that some of these, so this, yeah, so this recognized risk, which is myocarditis, you do see a higher risk with the vaccination. So a number greater than one shows that there is 
um, a higher risk in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. So this eTable 6 is the only table that gives data that compares these events between vaccinated and unvaccinated, which is really should be the main analysis. Um, in this paper, it was not. They their main analysis focused within the vaccinated and just compared the risk between two time windows uh, within the vaccinated. But they do provide this eTable 6, um, which compares the event rate between in the vaccinated versus the vaccinated. Um, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to. But the other interesting thing is that this table, if you look at these other events, mostly centered around uh, stroke and heart attack um, and thrombosis, you'll see that they're reporting significant, uh, you know, these p-values are pretty low, even lower than the one for myocarditis. They're reporting what seems to be significant protection against yeah. these events uh, with the vaccination and the vaccination, which doesn't make sense if if you look at VARES, these events are precisely the events that have, in terms of raw counts, they have a relatively high number of reported events. Um, and you can also find uh, case reports linking these events with vaccination in, specific, in individual cases. So um, what's discrepant is, is that this table seems to suggest that these, the vaccination is protecting against the very adverse events that were previously associated with vaccination, which doesn't make much sense. And unfortunately, one can't request the raw data to actually see if, okay, is it possible that the group labels were somehow mismatched? I, I make mistakes like that all the time. Sometimes you you make a labeling mistake. If, if there was a labeling mistake, then the data might make a little bit more sense. Um, so again, a second paper that used the VSD data, which was um, came out in a different journal, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, from the, which is published by the CDC. Um, this this study is consistent with the client at all in that it's showing reduced mortality risk in the people who were vaccinated. So a number below one uh, indicates. This is the rate, the, uh, the relative risk ratio, ratio, which is basically the rate of adverse events in the uh, vaccinated divided by the rate of the adverse events in the unvaccinated. Um, so if you have a lower rate, if you have a lower, I'm sorry, I think I switched that. Um, it's the rate in the, uh, yes, yes, the rate in the vaccinated divided by the unvaccinated. So if you have a number that's less than one, that risk is lower in the vaccinated. So here they're reporting significantly reduced mortality risks in the vaccination. And the authors, uh, and this is all cause mortality. So they're looking at, they're not just looking at COVID um, deaths, they're looking at non-COVID mortality. So that's the other interesting thing. You might expect this if they were looking at deaths due to COVID, which there might, there's, some evidence that they might reduce COVID mortality risk for a limited period of time at least. Um, but you wouldn't expect that for non-COVID mortality. Uh, and so the authors suggest that maybe there are some, some biases in people who chose to vaccinate versus not. And maybe there's other factors that could account for this uh, effect. And they uh, 
claim that they'll look at it in future analyses to address these issues. But again, this raises questions. Uh, so, um, so that's so obviously there's issues with the existing studies that are designed to monitor for safety. Um, so that um, sort of motivates other approaches, other more transparent approaches to try to estimate these these rates uh, using publicly available data, uh, which has its advantages that anybody can inspect the data, reanalyze the data, and check to make sure that your calculations are correct. Um, the disadvantage is it's not a case-controlled design. You're not specifically looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. Um, so there's obviously some limitations with the approach that I'm about to show you. Um, but hopefully you can appreciate the the some of the advantages of it as well. Um, so I'll give a brief background. So my other co-author on the on the paper inspired uh, the analyses that I'm about to present. But I'll start off with a brief description of his analyses because it's it helps the audience understand sort of the basis for this this type of analysis. Um, and then I'll also describe some of the potential confounds and limitations of his approach and how. Uh, these were addressed and improved in the analysis that I that I'll present after his. Uh, so briefly, um, his analyses were taking uh, data from Euromomo, which reports um, Z-score, uh, which basically reports adjusted uh, mortality rates for each country, about 23 uh, countries in the European Union across time, and he was basically cross-correlating those uh, Z-scores across time with weekly percentage increases in vaccinations for each country in those same countries um, across time. And in effect, um, he was creating basically graphs that look like this, where uh, say for week 12 of 2021, in this case, you see a positive correlation between uh, increase in percent vaccination relative to the first week for week 12, uh, versus on the y-axis here, you have mortality for a particular age group in week 14 of 2021. So there's a lag here. So, so in this case, it looks like there's uh, an increase in correlation between, positive correlation between uh, in, increase in percent vaccinated with mortality two weeks later mm -hmm. across these countries. And you see a similarly, if you with for a different lag, um, in this case, there's also a negative correlation. So you see a negative correlation um, in this case with the lag of, of eight weeks. Um, so when he stacked those up um, and he averaged across all of the weeks, but then plotted uh, and then took the, the number of positive correlations versus negative correlations as a function of lag, uh, you get a plot that looks like this. So in the first five weeks of injection, it looks like you have mostly positive correlations between vaccination and mortality. So positive yellow is an adverse event because you don't want to have positive correlations between vaccination and mortality, all-cause mortality. Um, but then after about five or six weeks, you see a negative blue um, area, which represents mostly negative correlations between uh, the vaccination and mortality, which might be reflective of a protective effect. It might um, suggest that there's some protection of the vaccine after somewhat 
conditional on someone passing the risk window of five or six weeks. Um, and then once the vaccine actually starts working, which takes about five or six weeks, then maybe this suggests that there might be some protective window. Um, and this second bump, um, there's still debate about what that means. I think it might have something to do with some confounding factors, potentially a COVID wave, which is this analysis did not explicitly adjust for this. Um, although it was it would be better if, if Hervey were here and we could we could see what he's done in the meantime uh, to adjust for for these other confounding factors. But I'll just present this as an open question for now. Um, I believe that this the second bump right here might be correlated to the boosters, which were introduced in each country about six months later. So that's a potential confound. But really the main information in this graph, which to me signals that um, there's an interesting hypothesis that should be investigated more is that this, this seems to indicate that there's adverse events uh, within the first five weeks following vaccination and then potentially more protective events following that um, period. Uh, potentially. But my focus was on trying to replicate that adverse effect within the first five weeks. And so I wanted to see, can I replicate what he was seeing with the European data in US data? Um, and the advantages of using the US data is that it gives you real units. Instead of Z-scores, you get actual death counts. Um, and you can get non-COVID versus COVID. So the CDC provides spreadsheets, which allow you to look at each state and it tells you how many COVID deaths, total deaths and non-COVID deaths were there. So I wanted to see if I could replicate his, his uh, effect just within the first five weeks, an adverse effect. So um, the main sources of data um, were all publicly available, provided by the CDC. Um, and in this case, the independent variable is the number of vaccine doses that are administered in each state across time. Um, the dependent variable is the total number of deaths in each state. Um, and then as a nuisance variable uh, for some of the analyses, I also used data from another spreadsheet, which gives you case rates, uh, COVID case rates. So this is just an example of the structure of the data before it gets fed into the actual modeling. Um, these tables are made available on GitHub. Um, so it makes it easy for anybody to replicate these analyses. Um, all they have to do is, is make sure that these numbers match the numbers from the spreadsheets from the CDC. So the reason I made these tables is because the CDC spreadsheets are organized in such a way that it's not easy to directly and analyze from the spreadsheet. You have to do some parsing first before you can put it into a format. Um, so in this case, the, the independent variable, what's called vax change here is just the total number of doses that were given in each state for the previous month versus the Y variable, which is, um, oops, which is highlighted here, which is the um, the Y variable here is for year 2021, what are the total number of deaths that were recorded in each state? And as a baseline or a nuisance variable, we're going to adjust for 
the prior month, the prior year number of deaths in each state in 2020. So it's important to adjust for prior year, um, same month uh, deaths as a way to control for various factors, including population size differences across the states and also mortality differences across each state that may be due to other factors, um, not just the, the differences in vaccination. So the, the point of this analysis is you're trying to isolate the specific effects of, of vaccine doses across state. Um, so by normalizing for the prior 2020 uh, same month deaths, you're controlling for um, other factors that might account for any differences that you see across state. Oops, I'm pressing next, doesn't seem to, oh, there we go. Um, so very quickly, so briefly, um, so for each age group and for seven months in the period of 2021, uh, remember the vaccine campaign started in late December of 2020. Here, um, where I'm looking at uh, the number of deaths in each state that to see whether they're predicted by the number of vaccine doses in the previous month. So because of the uh, the limitations of the one of the spreadsheets, they only give mortality counts per month. They don't they don't provide it for on a weekly basis. So it would, would have been nice to have more time resolution. Um, but because of the limitation, I could only break this up by month. So for each age group and month, um, estimated a multiple regression. And in this case, the, the vaccine, this beta two is the term of interest. Um, and uh, we wanna see if this term is significantly different from zero. And if so, is it positive or negative? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is just an example of one plot. Um, so as you can see, in this case, there's a positive correlation. So to make these plots, what I had to do was first residualize the year 2020. Um, first, uh, yeah, so this, the y-axis is is, uh, is basically adjusted for previous year um, deaths. And then I plot that against the, the vaccine term. So in this case, you can see there's many uh, outliers. So this, but once you discount these outliers, there's there's a positive trend uh, across states, um, and that I won't I won't go into that. Um, so when you do this for all of the age groups and months, um, and then correct for multiple comparisons uh, on that beta two term, these are the these are the age groups and months that give a significant beta weight, and they're all positive in this case. And the interesting thing to note here is that what falls out of the data is this temporal uh, trend that matches the vaccine rollouts in the United States and most everywhere else, which targeted first the, the nursing homes and the older age groups. Uh, so consistent with that, you see positive, positive beta weights only in the older age groups in the first half of the year. And it's not until uh, April or May where you start seeing these positive associations in the younger age groups, um, because that's 
which makes sense because that's when the vaccine was made available to the younger age groups. Um, and this this is a follow up. This hasn't been. Um, we're currently writing this up uh, with, with my colleagues, Irve Seligman and, and uh, David Wiseman. Um, we're currently writing this up, which is basically an extension of the same uh, plot that I just showed you, but it's extended to include September of 2021 to February of 2022. So this is covering the booster. So the first booster that was given, um, oops, sorry. Um, so the boosters, if I remember correctly, were approved in late September for people who are considered high risk and above the age of 65. And it was made available to everyone above age 18, I, I believe sometime in mid-October or late October. Um, and then shortly thereafter in November, you start seeing uh, positive effects across all age groups. So in this case, this is this result makes sense because the booster was approved for um, all a bigger chunk of ages at once. Um, so the fact that you see these effects appear in almost all age groups at once um, sort of makes sense. Um, and this is interesting to note up here, this age group from zero to 17, those positive those positive effects um, in the paper I, I well it's in the supplement where I broke it down by um, infant deaths so deaths before the age of one versus um, after the age of one and the majority majority in general regardless of vaccination the majority of deaths in this age group are in the first year of life so be below the age of one about over half of those deaths in the whole age group. Um, are in that age group. So that carries the most of the weight in general. Um, and then when you look at vaccination and you restrict it to just that age group, you do, sure enough, you see a positive effect. Um, and that could be a signal that's related to some of the reports of um, problems with, um, you mentioned fertility, um, the yeah, so so problems with um, potential um, of adverse effects on the uh, babies um, due to vaccination in the mother, um, and that warrants definitely more uh, investigation as well. Um, so it seems that this analysis is sensitive enough to pick up um, some some signal that might be related to some of those adverse events that are you know by and large rare, but we're still able to pick it up. You know how rare that's the question is what what exactly is the incidence rate so that we know so that we can inform um uh this intervention you know form uh risk benefit analysis so what i wanted to do with this data was to try to use these slopes as a way to estimate mortality risk just based on the data itself so no uh assumptions about under reporting factor with vares um with this approach, you can just look at the fitted lines and try to use those to estimate uh, mortality risk based on this rise over run relationship. So for a given, the x-axis gives you the number of vaccine doses. So uh, for a given um, traversal of the x-axis, 
you're going to have a certain traversal along the y-axis. And if you take the ratio of those two values, um, you can use that to estimate a mortality risk of the vaccine. So hopefully this makes this, this mm -hmm. plot gives enough of an intuitive uh, grasp um, for what I will show here, which um, maybe I don't have to go into too much, uh, but this just lays out the actual math for um, how to estimate this uh, Y2 hat uh, given oh, X1 hat, uh, given X1 and X2, which I showed here. Um, so we want to solve for Y2, which is the um, the predicted uh, mortality estimate given uh, an X1 and an X2. And in this case, um, I increased the X1 by 10%. So say you start off at a certain uh, vaccination number of vaccine doses and you increase it by 10%, what is gonna be your rise in the Y2 hat? So that's what these formulas are, are calculating. Um, and essentially, um, I took those estimates and uh, summed them across all of the states. So for each state, I estimate this value. And then I um, take the average for what the vaccine dose, that what that 10% increase in vaccine doses would have been for all 10 states. And so for the whole country, for the whole US, you get an averaged, um, in this case, what I'm calling vaccine VFR, um, so for each age group, this estimate gives um, an age-specific uh, vaccine mortality risk or fatality rate. And when you do that, and then you multiply that by the total number of vaccine doses that were administered in each state, you get a table that gives you an estimate of the number of deaths associated with each um, for each month and age group. Um, and this is how uh, the paper arrived at these, these estimates of, uh, so in the first six months of vac vaccination, um, this paper gives an, an estimate of, of, of about 150,000 uh, vaccine associated deaths in the first six months of the vaccine uh, campaign in the US. Um, and then if you take um, all of the, all of the doses that were given in the US during that period and divide this number by the total number of doses, you get a mortality risk estimate of, of a 0.04%. So this 0.04%, so how do we validate it? How do we know it makes sense? Um, does it, is it consistent with other um, studies, related studies? So going back to this Blumenthal et al. study, which looked specifically at anaphylaxis. Um, so yeah, so this, yeah, this was uh, Jessica's report here, where um, she essentially compared the rate that of anaphylaxis as determined by a active surveillance system, in this case, Blumenthal et al., and compared that to the rate of anaphylaxis reported in VARES, um, she arrived at um, this 41 times 
uh, underreporting factor for anaphylaxis. So VAERS appears to underreport anaphylaxis by 41, by a factor 41. And if you take our estimate, oops, sorry, oops, sorry. Uh, if you take our estimate of 0.04 and divided it by the CDC's own estimate based on VAERS, um, you get a estimated 20 underreported it suggests that VAERS deaths are underreported by a factor of 20, which makes sense given that death is a, is a more severe, obviously it's the most severe outcome relative to anaphylaxis. Um, so you might expect that the more severe the outcome, the more likely it will be reported to VAERS, whereas milder outcomes are, are not gonna be, um, maybe less likely to be reported. And, um, yeah, but go ahead. Can we, um, uh, sorry, um, I was wondering, uh, were you able to look at like what the booster does? Like, because this is like, you know, the all the vaccines um, that were administered, but I mean, maybe the risk is higher if someone gets the second shot. Yes. Were you able so to look at that? That's actually what we're working on. Um, so that's actually what we're we're working on right now with the, the second manuscript that's been held up um, by other factors. But yes, that's actually a question that I want to address. Um, so this this is the data. This is the same plot for the booster, and I want to see whether the risk is higher relative to the primary series. So that's one question actually that I'm trying to that we would like to answer with this data. Um, so that's an excellent question. And uh, hopefully, you know, next time I come back, I'll have more answers <laughs> and, you, and I'll be able could, to present that work. Yeah. Sorry, could you go back one slide? Because we saw, yes. um, so basically the, the danger zone is always these four months. Um, well, I would say the danger zone is when there's a mass vaccination um, in the month. You know, this, we're only looking at the month after and the same month of vaccinations. Um, so by danger zone, if you mean uh, temporal, the, the risk window relative to the, the time of vaccination, mm -hmm. is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I would say I haven't seen evidence, which I'll get into the second part of the talk, which is, is there a danger zone beyond the first month or the six weeks post-vaccination? I don't think there's evidence to show that there that there is a specific danger zone. Um, it, it might be, I, I still think that most of the adverse events are gonna happen short within the first month or two following vaccination, um, but it's difficult to know uh, for sure, because uh, the, the data is not, doesn't seem to be available to really answer that question um, with more clarity. But yeah, this this makes sense because this is when the boosters came out, right? When they came out, that's when you started seeing these effects. And it looked like, um, you know, I didn't extend this beyond February. Actually, that's a great question because, um, you know, based on what you're saying, is yes. I mean, this does this does. Uh, well, no, yeah, we, we can't answer that question with this because um, we're only looking at uh, 
yeah, you'd have to look at what percentage of each age group was getting vaccinations, um, which this analysis across mm -hmm. time, which this analysis doesn't do. So we can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, so finally, so yeah, so the other, um, the other main goal of this paper was to try to use these data-driven mortality estimates and compare them with uh, coronavirus mortality risk of getting infected. So in this case, this is a meta-analysis uh, based on the Wuhan, the original strain of the, the virus and the estimated fatality, infection fatality rates. And uh, a quick comparison of our estimated uh, vaccine-associated mortality risk, even though in absolute terms, the risk is relatively low for both, um, there, if you compare them to each other, um, the, the vaccine-associated mortality risk is actually on a similar order of magnitude as the, the virus, which strongly suggests they should not be given um, the primary series should not have been given to anyone under age uh, 50. And then the booster, I would definitely argue no age group should have gotten the booster. Um, and it's definitely debatable. Uh, now there's more there's more data available on the booster. At the time that I gave this talk, um, there was there was no information. And if there's no information, it's better to play it safe. And why give it to everybody uh, if we don't have enough information yet? Um, so the second second part of this talk, which uh, which relates back to your question about mm -hmm. what's the what's the danger zone, or is there a certain danger zone that might be delayed? Um, so this 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 interesting uh, hypothesis was brought up by uh, this 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 post by Steve Kirsch. Um, where he basically uh, looked at, oops, uh, I'm already subscribed, but you know, I won't, I'll just show mine, oops. All right, so this this is a, a small, this is a short post where um, I summarized his post uh, and briefly he shows a graph that goes from April 1st to December 1st and it shows an increase in, uh, all-cause mortality in ages 18 to 15 between um, August and November. And this increase uh, is about five months uh, delayed relative to the peak of vaccinations, which in the U.S. peaked around April 12th, April 11th. Um, so that suggests, what he's suggesting is, okay, maybe this is evidence that the, you know, any of the um, non-trivially, non-trivially rare, rare fatal consequences of the vaccines, if they're going to have a, a negative impact, on average, they they would take five months to kick in. Um, I disagree with that, and um, I actually sent him this graph from Hervey, um, which. So in this post, which I'll get to, um, yeah, we have time. Um, he includes this graph. Yeah, 
so yeah, this should not be credit to me. This should credit Hervé Seligman, who, who produced this graph. Um, but this graph appears to be consistent with his argument um, in showing this second um, hill of uh, adverse effects, uh, which is about six months following the first injection. Um, but I, I, I think this is not the explanation for this graph. And I'll tell you why. Um, so, so what I argue is that this, what really explains um, his graph, this graph here, um, is really okay. Yeah. So he he says, could these be COVID deaths? And he claims the shapes don't match up. Um, in this case, maybe. Oops. Um, so he's saying, so I, I actually, I, I don't know if he looked at this carefully and I tried to reach out to him and, and I would love to go on his show and, and maybe um, focus on this a little bit more. Um, but this, this curve here does match up with the, the curve that he shows in this first part of his post right here. So if you'll see, it peaks around uh, September 9th. This curve peaks around September 9th, which is also the peak of this Delta surge in the South, which is around September 12th. All right, so maybe it's off. It's off by a few days. So this peak right here, I believe, is what he's seeing with this graph right here. Uh, which is the the big Delta surge that happened in the South United States. Um, so, yeah, so I think <laughs> he's wrong on this issue. And I asked him when I emailed him, I asked him if, if I could get a cash prize, if I could um, <laughs> show that he was wrong about it. Um, but he didn't, he didn't respond to that, but um, you know, cause he's famous for offering, cash prizes for people who can prove them wrong. Uh, so unfortunately, I can't, I don't think I can monetize the post in that way. Um, but um, so let's see, what else What else does he present as evidence? Uh, yeah, he, he posts this, this, um, he posts this figure, which shows that the correlation coefficient is maximal at a delay of about five months. But again, this this doesn't uh, rule out what's causing the spur spurious correlation. I'm I arguing that this this peak here, this 0.8 uh, correlation between vaccination and excess mortality, when you shift it and you see that peak correlation, it can still be caused by the fact that you have a COVID wave, a Delta surge here uh, that is five months after the peak vaccination campaign, which occurred around here. So if you can imagine this peak vaccination, which occurred around April here, if you shift it with the excess mortality, uh, you're going to get a correlation. It doesn't mean that it's the vaccination that's causing the mortality. In this case, a third variable uh the 
delta surge is what I believe is causing that that um, that increase in mortality. Um, so again, so this this graph to me it doesn't mean it's not saying much because um, I think it's 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 explained. This graph is still explainable by the delta surge. Um, I didn't have a chance to read his post in full because I'm not subscribed. So um, you'll have to take take this with a grain of salt. Um, but the other the other pieces of evidence that he shows. Um, yeah, so this one, this one, again, I, 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 I'm not subscribed, so I can't uh, delve into it too much, except to say that if you take red noise, which is basically random, uh, it's, it's basically, you could generate time series randomly using white noise, which in that case is just random time points, or red noise, which introduces autocorrelation. So it introduces a correlation structure in the time series, and that's called red noise. If you produce red no two red noise curves randomly, and then you ask, okay, how many times am I able to shift them uh, and find a significant correlation based on their shifted data? Say I have 90 time points, and I create two red noise curves, and I find out how many of those times of those random simulations, can I get a significant correlation if I shift? Uh, you know, you'd be surprised that there's you can there's a relatively high rate of ways to get uh, that uh, an overlap um, that's significant by chance. Uh, so I would have to look into this post more carefully to see exactly how he produced these curves and the fits. And what they represent, but my my intuition, my suspicion, I suspect that um, this is not going to show evidence in the way that he thinks it is. Um, although, of course, that's just me um, spitballing a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, I, I kind of went into the main uh, reasons why. Um, I don't think the the evidence that he presents in this post, I don't think to me, it's not gonna survive uh, really an in-depth critical examination and of all the potential confounding uh, factors. Really what he would need to do is provide this graph that extends all the way to the beginning of the year, which, um, unfortunately, he doesn't include in his post. If he did, I would expect to see another peak in January, which represented a COVID wave that came before the vaccines or just as the vaccines were introduced. Um, and what I did in this post is, um, so I produced that graph myself. So I basically took... Um, a spreadsheet here, uh, which was the weekly death counts um, across the US and by age. And I restricted it to, in this case, the ages 25 to 64. You couldn't make it, you can't restrict it any more than that. And when you look back to January, sure enough, you see another wave um, 
that to me, it can't be attributed to the vaccines because this occurred before the vaccines even came out or were administered to people who were above uh, 18. So this to me is evidence that um, this really is just the COVID, a COVID wave. Mm -hmm. But can I ask you? Yep. So yeah, please. We, mm -hmm. we know that there's a lot of uh, miscounting of the, or rather like a um, very complex counting of the corona deaths. So we have some people dying of corona or with corona, plus we have all these um, problems with the the treatment that they received, you know, like maybe because people wanted to help. So like this, um, like over overactive intubation, active, um, you know, application. Right. And also, like maybe some financial incentives that uh, made for right, uh, right, maybe right. toxic, uh, you know, uh, treatments and so on. So, I mean, could it not also be that we have, like, you know, that there's no connection? Maybe we have the first initial surge can be corona, but can also be like um, initial um, inappropriate treatment. And then yes, the yeah. second uh, surge could be like already the um, vaccination problem that we see. And maybe the third one is then the booster or a combination of whatever what's going on. You know, like it's it's very hard yeah. to distinguish these, oh, yeah, these results. Yeah. I agree. I agree. When I use the term COVID, I'm sort of using that as an umbrella term for all of the associated um, factors that are involved in a COVID death, which might, I agree might include um, treatments that, that increase, that paradoxically increase increase uh, toxicity uh, like remdesivir yeah um so so yeah that's yeah i totally agree with you um i just don't think that this i just don't agree that the, there's some mechanism by which if a vaccine is going to have an adverse effect in terms of causing someone's death i don't see a plausible mechanism where it would just take on average five months for the majority of the population who received them it doesn't make sense to me Physiologically, I just can't think of some mechanism um, where that would take place. So, in that in that sense, I think um, he's wrong in this theory or hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But really I do agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I do agree with you that um, it would combine over time. The vaccination, once the protective effects, you know, once the uh, the antibodies wane, there could be increased antibody antibody dependent enhancement and other factors that increase someone's risk to the virus or to other factors. Um, so that I agree with over time, it can have a extended delay effect, um, but I don't think it's going to have a stereotypical temporal delay in everybody or not everybody, but in most people. Um, so that's what I'm arguing mm -hmm. against. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see, like, what kind of, um, you know, deaths are the most significant in these, uh, in this, uh, you know, from the VAS, but could be, I mean, what we could saw, see in the um, uh, pathology conference, that we have these, these ruptures that are caused by the, um, you know, this lymphocyte storm that uh, Professor Anne Bookout pointed out. So it could be that they take some time to develop and maybe some other, I don't know if there's a, could be some, some sort of explanation if you have like a suppressed immune system, like by effects from the vaccination, how long would it approximately take until you die? Because I mean, the most, these, these immediately, immediate deaths, I mean, they can, 
basically, I mean, what can they be? Like, it's not cancer, obviously, because the cancer doesn't kill you overnight, maybe. But like, mm -hmm. it could be like an anaphylactic shock or could be like a heart problem or like a stroke in the head or something, you know, that gets you immediately. So I don't, I don't know how, how many um, of these uh, medical conditions we can imagine that would take, you know, take you, uh, well, I mean, uh, kill you like within a few days, a few weeks, or others that maybe develop over time, you know, like four, five months, like say like a major heart condition. Like someone asked also like if it's a mild myoditis, the myocarditis that you develop in the first, like after a certain amount of time, can that easily develop into like a serious condition, um, say in a few months, that's, that, then that's going to kill you? Or is that very unlikely from a medical point of view? Uh, no, I, I, I think that I, I still think based on what I've the data I've seen, I think most of uh, most of what's going to kill you will happen within the first two months, maybe three months. Um, but I do think that there could be some subclinical subclinical myocarditis, for example, that takes time or and there needs to be a trigger like exercising uh, intensely or some type of uh, acute uh, environmental trigger that um, could could cause the heart to fail acutely. Um, but that's going to be that those time factors are going to be different for so many people. They're just going to average away. And I just don't think you're going to see some signal at the population level that represents some trigger that has the same delayed effect in a sufficient number of people that it's going to give you a signal that you can see at this uh, such a uh, gross scale. Mm -hmm. So these curves, you know, when you look at the whole population and you're and you're calculating the rates of vaccinations and or or the number of COVID deaths in a whole population, um, I, I find it hard to believe that you're going to see these any any uh, delayed effects that you described that I, I do think will are occurring may occur um, just not in a way that's going to be uh, so similar enough for a sufficient number of people that'll give you this signal. Um, I think there's other explanations for these curves mm -hmm. that we're seeing that that are more immediate and obvious. Yeah, that's very interesting. Like someone asks from the audience, I, I guess it's maybe like a, a fellow researcher, if you are using MATLAB for your analysis, and if so, would you would you be willing to share like some of your data? Oh yeah, sure. Is um, the the so all the MATLAB code for the for the preprint or for this analysis that I just that I don't oh, know, but in general, maybe yeah, maybe we can just in general, like if, yeah, in definitely. Case the, yeah, so if the audience definitely. maybe, or if you can, uh, maybe they should sure, get in touch yeah. with you, and then maybe you can share the information. Of course, that would yeah. be great. And actually, yeah, so actually, the MATLAB code is all on this GitHub here. So if my my GitHub um, is Spiropan, so S P I R O P A N forward slash, and this for this project, it's C O V F R, so COVID. VFR, mm -hmm. um, and that includes the MATLAB scripts that I used for the preprint. Um, they're kind of convoluted, so it's it's easier. Um, I think it's easier to to work off of these tables. Check to make sure that the values match the CDC, and then use these tables as your input 
for your own analysis. I think that would be easier, but of course, people are welcome to look at my MATLAB code, which is not, well, you know, it's not, doesn't have the greatest documentation. Um, but in terms of this latest analysis, uh, you know what, I didn't, yeah, I didn't provide it for this post, so I can, I'll see if I can, yeah, if they follow up with me, and if they want it for this, mm -hmm. this particular analysis, I can provide it, or maybe attach it to the post. Super, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess they should get in touch with you, maybe, because this is like uh, very, you know, specialized things, I guess, oh, if sure, we sure. share this on yep. the Telegram yeah. channel, it's maybe not so interesting for everyone, but like, for the specialists would be great if like some scientific discussion could, uh, you know, uh, evolve between mm -hmm. you and maybe other researchers in that field would be great. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. I mean, very interesting. So I'm curious how your research in that uh, area is going to continue. We should uh, stay in touch for, I'm especially yes, interested definitely. for this booster outcome. That would be yes, uh, yes. amazing yeah, that would be good. to hear something about, because yep. it's maybe going to clarify things more. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Super. Yeah, very interesting. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, is there anything you would like to add, like a final statement or? Uh, uh, no, just wanted to thank you for for having me and and um, and uh, yeah, feel free uh, to follow up um, for your audience members by email, um, which I can show my my email. Yeah, it's easily Googleable if you type my name. Um, actually, yeah, it's easier to give my uh, yeah. So my Substack is here uh, right now. It's called ptolemamesis.substack.com mm -hmm. and my email address uh the easiest way to contact me is at either one of these emails addresses mm -hmm. super so, yeah thanks right, so, thank much. so much like it's 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 really amazing like there's always you when you start looking at the things more in detail there's always something new it's amazing yes yeah, it's yes like... <laughs> yes and uh yeah of course, communicating and sharing code is an important part of that uh, that process. Super. Yeah, thanks right. so much for sharing your findings. And I'm we'll keep in touch to find out what's what further conclusions you're going to come to. Sounds great. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Ja, wir haben hier mit ähm, Spiro Pantazatos gesprochen. Ähm, er hat sich näher auseinandergesetzt mit der ähm, der Sterblichkeitsrate nach den äh, Impfungen. Rate after vaccinations and there's still a lot of things that will probably still come out um, from his research. Always uh, very interesting. The detail is always out there, and it's always in the interest of uh, today's topic. Um, they knew what they were doing. Well, the facts are on the table as they have been for a good old while now. And against this backdrop, it is, of course, important to keep discussing it and to discuss with uh, those um, who were responsible for this, who um, knew about this from the beginning. So I think we will have a, a session uh, with uh, maybe uh, getting more uh, interlocutors uh, from um, the opposing camp who have been supporting the uh, official narrative. That will be interesting to see. 
Well, we're at the end of the session, and at this point, I would like to appeal to the audience again to support us financially until we've overcome these as yet unsolved internal problems. Uh, so we're still waiting for the uh, documentation uh, concerning the assets that have been um, um, put in storage. Um, uh, and the refund of the 700,000 euro and also the invoices haven't been um, honored yet by um, Mr. Fermich. So I'd be very happy if you could support us until we've overcome this crisis and are uh, fully operational again. Well, thank you very much. And I'd say I will wish you, everybody, a um, pleasant Friday afternoon or evening and a nice weekend. We'll see you again next week. There will be some interesting development and interlocutors.